Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. Uh, I am your host, Terry Plucknett. Along with me, as always, are Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. And uh, we've got a pretty good program in store for you today. As uh, we are going to be uh, reviewing one of the biggest films of the year so far to come out in theaters, as well as uh, as going on a deep dive of one of our all-time favorite films. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, Zach, uh, what's your World Series prediction? I mean, we're we're in opening weekend here. Uh, who do you see? Uh, who do you see taking it all? I really like the Astros versus the Dodgers, and Jimmy Wynn is my MVP. Oh wait, I'm giving stuff away about our future segment. <laughs> well done, well done. Todd, who do you got as your World Series pick? Uh, I'm not really sure. I I don't know. the The Red Sox haven't looked that good so far, but I don't know. It's it probably will be a team in the NL East. That's what I'm going with. The Mets. That's that's not bad. We all know Todd's a really big Mets fan. Yes, I I think he just predicted the Mets are winning it all. Uh, he doesn't want to say it, but he's thinking it. Not the Mets. <laughs> not the cheese. He loves that Robinson not Cano sign. Not the cheese. Uh, he hit a home run in his first at bat as a Met. It kind of it, it kind of made me mad, but kind of made me happy too. I don't know. Uh, so I've got only a couple more of my uh, preview articles. I know the season started, but I haven't gotten a chance to finish them yet. I've got Yankees over Dodgers. That's my World Series. So, uh, so we'll see how that goes. Uh, I'm excited. I'm I'm a I'm a huge uh, I'm a huge baseball fan. Uh, now, Todd, I'm I'm gonna throw this to you. Who is your uh, college basketball national championship pick here? I know your bracket is completely destroyed. But yeah, my the team I picked to win actually lost already. But I don't know. Yeah, the the Elite Eight is actually my favorite round because uh, of of maybe my favorite couple of days of sports all year because you get to see four different teams act like they won the national championship by cutting down the nets and stuff. And it really is the last time that it's like a true uh, a true tournament game because in the final four they're playing in like a football stadium and stuff. So today and tomorrow are my favorite days. But as of this point, I I, I mean. It'd be hard to pick against Kentucky because I feel like they have the easiest path to actually get to the championship game. But I don't know. I, I don't think Duke will win because I, I think both Texas Tech and Gonzaga are horrible matchups for them. So I think they'll lose in the Final Four. Okay. But I think the real question is, in what ways will it, will teams blow it against Duke? I mean, we've already seen a missed dunk. We've seen a missed offensive rebound off, or a missed rebound off of a free throw. So, are we talking like you know maybe a uh, a Chris Webber timeout situation? Are we talking about like maybe a midcourt heave? I mean, we know they're winning the title in a ridiculous way. So, you know, there, there needs to be some Vegas prop bets on how they're going to win the, the championship because they're evil. And evil sure. always wins. The evil umpire. <laughs> Well, I, I had Duke winning it all in my original uh, in my original bracket, but now that it's completely busted, yeah, I'm rooting for Gonzaga. I think most of America is rooting for Gonzaga at this point. 
All right. Todd, what are you drinking? Uh, I am drinking a vodka martini. Mmm. It looks almost like mash-esque there. What you got yeah. going on? Just missing the martini glass. Yeah. Yeah. Zach, what do you got? I am drinking some Mirasau, uh Pinot Noir, which was the best uh, $9.99 Pinot I could find last night, and uh, I'm sure if uh, Jim Lovell was partaking in this podcast, he'd be drinking Pinot too. Well, actually, I think, you know, in honor of Apollo 13, we all should have been drinking champagne. But yeah. uh, but we're not. We're not used to the champagne. Uh, so I have, uh, once again, from Hop Valley Brewing out of Eugene, Oregon, I have the Double Delic IIPA because it's the Double Delic Uh, and I have uh, this is like a giant like over a one pint bottle of this stuff which is pretty awesome and it's got a 9.3% ABV so uh, we're going to really be uh, feeling it by the end of it but this is going to be a fun podcast so cheers cheers you know the the I.I. is really appropriate for the first movie we're going to get into, which is Us, because there's a number of prominent uh, number 11s throughout that movie. So I don't know if that it's was intentional point. on your part, Terry, but nicely done. Not, not at all, but I'm going to take credit for it. <laughs> all right, well, let's get into it. So, uh, so yes, Zach said we are reviewing Us, the uh, sophomore uh, effort by Jordan Peele. Coincidences? Since we've been up here, they've been happening more and more. It's like there's this black cloud hanging over us. Uh, he broke out in uh, in 2017 with uh, with Get Out, which ended up getting nominated for Best Picture. He won an Oscar for the writing on it. And I think Us was, for most movie fans, Us was one of the most anticipated films of the year because what was Jordan Peele going to do next? And this film, uh, I would say this film definitely did not disappoint. This film stars uh, Lupita Nyong'o as Adelaide Wilson and uh, her and her husband Gabe, played by Winston Duke, go on a a family trip to the coast. And... um, and you have Adelaide starting to get uh, this uh, really creepy vibe as she is reminded of this horrific event from her childhood uh, where she, uh, she had just this traumatic thing happen to her in, a, in a kind of a, a hall of mirrors. And, uh, and her husband doesn't really believe her. However, slowly but surely what she was afraid would happen starts happening and starts coming true and uh no one can no one's making movies like jordan peele right now he's able to make these these like horror films with these classic horror vibes to them but they feel fresh they feel new uh they they have this upbeat kind of comedy to them which you know draws from his background as as more of a comedy person uh I'm not a horror fan, but I love watching his movies. And this one, it takes you on all sorts of twists and turns as it goes throughout the movie. Um, it gets to a big twist at the end, which was something that I did not see coming. But after you hear it, you're 
you think, how did I not see this coming? Um, I think uh, Jordan Peele is turning into what M. Night Shyamalan wanted to be about 20 years ago, and that is the next Hitchcock. I think he is uh, he is developing this this kind of genre of his own uh, in in the horror horror realm and uh, is able to make these uh, these intellectual these really fun psychotic thrillers that uh, that uh, are are fresh and new and yet still feel classic at the at the same time. I'm given this three and a half stars. I enjoyed every minute of it and uh, and yeah. It, it was a really fun, a really fun film. Uh, Todd, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I agree pretty much with what you said. I, I, I really like the how in the beginning it has a, a similar vibe to to Get Out with like the, it's like it's got like beautiful shots and like really cool hit music and like a really in, interesting tone, and then it just sort of is like a slow build into something way more sinister and way more intense. And like uh, the the implications of the twist are, are crazy. Like I I kind of saw it coming in a way, but uh, but it really makes you like rethink like all the little things you heard and all the things you saw from uh from before because everything is important and every line is important. And I I just like cycling back through the movie after when it's over. It was it was a really interesting experience. I feel like I need to almost watch it again in order to really piece piece everything together because a lot of things when you watch it doesn't necessarily click or it doesn't you might just brush over a lot of things uh well the one movie that i feel like i could compare this to is uh it, it follows because i feel like that movie it was another uh, early release lower budget horror movie that really just sort of like took everyone uh immediately even though like this is a way bigger hit because it's way more high profile but it, it it has a lot of scenes that aren't like traditionally scary because i don't really feel like this movie is all that is, is all that scary it's more like uncomfortable and like and ha- and ha- gives you like more like things to think about it's like it's like psychological horror rather than actual horror and it, it follows is definitely like that too with all the deep hidden meanings it, it gives it sort of like a timelessness and definitely modern entries in the genre all are looking up to those kind of movies but i mean the movie isn't get out but it's not really trying to be it doesn't have the the, the blatant social commentary and uh, and uh, oscar potential but He's he's not yeah he's not trying to make that movie again he he's more doing whatever he wants to do because at this point you can pretty much attach his name to anything and it'll be like highly anticipated and a huge hit I mean he he even ha- he has a clear homage to The Shining when like there's one point where she's running just like Jack Torrance and uh, and the, uh, definitely Hitchcock on several occasions I I really like the movie and it's really put together uh, like as well as you can uh, a horror movie in uh, in this day and age because i'm not the biggest fan of the genre either but i but I, I i can't appreciate it when there's a good one made i'm almost excited that he doesn't have another movie planned at this point because i don't want to take it for granted like you would like a woody allen or something like that he could be like a paul thomas anderson or a or a kubrick or a tarantino with his like deft hand with the camera and like and uh his artistic vision i i'm i'm right with you terry i give it three and a half stars and and i like what you said of it he it doesn't compare to get out and he wasn't really trying to to remake get out and it's it's absolutely true he was trying to do something completely different completely fresh because that's just who he is he he's all about finding something that's going to feel feel fresh and feel new and and uh, however there's still some feeling of it like one of the first things i thought of is one of the very first scenes in this is they're in a car driving somewhere 
It's like, that's like the first scene of Get Out, is they're in a car driving somewhere, or one of the first scenes. So uh, that's that's kind of, maybe that's going to be his trademark, is uh, all his movies are about the main characters going away somewhere and what they encounter. Could be. Zach, what did you think of Us? Yeah, so um, I really like your comparisons, um, especially yours, Terry, to M. Night Shyamalan, because I remember when The Sixth Sense came out, and I think it had a similar effect in some ways to Get Out. It was a surprise hit. It came out earlier in the year and got several Oscar nominations, and it was a film that both the critics and the public at large loved. It made a crap ton of money. And so when Shyamalan made Unbreakable, there were all these expectations about what it would be, because it had some similarities with The Sixth Sense. And it didn't quite live up to the sixth sense, but it was still a pretty entertaining movie, and it didn't necessarily pigeonhole uh, Shyamalan for making certain types of movies, although I think he did get that sort of stigma attached with him that he would do surprise endings. I feel really similarly about Us. I don't think it's quite as good as Get Out, and uh, I don't think I'm quite as enthusiastic uh, about it as both of you are, but it was a really enjoyable movie, a really enjoyable experience to watch. Um, I thought the performances were uniformly excellent. Lupita Nyong'o is uh, amazing in this movie, and it's really important that she hasn't had you would think after 12 years a slave that her career would just blossom but this is really the first big role major role that she's had um really in, in a while um and she's great in this movie um i think the premise is really interesting you don't know where this movie's going and and like get out it sort of demands that you watch it both with like a, 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 the, the the sort of sentiments as of a movie fan but also you know looking toward his kind of social commentary which which is there in this movie although it's not quite as apparent i think you have to read through the subtext a little bit particularly with the the neighbor uh characters uh played by uh elizabeth moss and tim heidecker um the movie is chock full of cinematic in references, kind of like you were both saying, um, but it still feels pretty fresh and original. Um, there are the, the movie that I thought of was uh, the one I love, which is a movie with Elizabeth Moss in it, actually, which has a, a very kind of similar narrative um, sort of. Uh, uh, I don't know. I guess you you, you want to say gimmick, but. Um, this movie stylistically is really different and uh it was really entertaining i saw it with a packed theater everyone was engaged in the movie um it was a similar experience to get out everyone was just watching it they were laughing at times they were screaming at times um it was really really enthusiastic um i guess the major flaw i have in the movie is uh i don't know if the last 30 minutes fully explain everything that we had seen up to that point i guess i would have liked a more in-depth sort of examination about uh what he was trying to do um i don't i still don't really know who the tethered are or what they're meant to represent but maybe he's just sort of like i don't know being a troll hoping that audiences will write fan theories online i mean this is a very 2019 movie it's a movie that wants people to write reddit threads about what the significance of the number 11 is and so i, I definitely think in that respect jordan peele has an intentionality about winking at the audience that way um and it's really refreshing and entertaining so uh i can't wait to see what he does next he's uh really having a, a great moment and and uh, he almost has carte blanche at this point. So a solid three stars uh, for me. If the, if the ending had been a little tighter, I would be maybe a little closer to what both of you are giving it. Well, and one thing I like about it is that it doesn't feel the need to answer every question. You know, it, it, it's, it's willing to leave some things unanswered, which, uh, which like you said, is going to lead, lead to all sorts of different fan theories and things like that. And I think Get Out did a very similar thing. It didn't feel like it needed to tie everything up into a bow. It's going to leave some stuff unanswered and leave the audience thinking. Um, going back to your comparison to M. Night Shyamalan, it's almost like 
Jordan Peele is turning into if M. Night Shyamalan didn't take himself so seriously. Because <laughs> M. Night Shyamalan definitely was like, he was trying to be the ne next Hitchcock almost to a fault, and it ended up being his downfall. And that's why he hasn't been making such great, great stuff. Jordan Peele is just doing what he does and referencing a lot of great stuff, and it ends up, it ends up turning into something original because of it. That's why um, I said Tarantino. I like I that that's what one I could think of most because he he's definitely paying homage to like the things that he grew up loving, and yet he's making a completely original movie by basically like stealing from every other movie that he's watched, and somehow still seems like he's making his own movie. It's it's bizarre, and that's what Tarantino yeah. does. And that's true. That's true, and and it it's rare that I that I watch a movie and as soon as it ends. I want to sit down and watch it over again, like right then and there, because of it reminded me, Todd, when we back like what fifteen years ago when we first watched the movie Matchstick Men with Nicolas Cage, yeah. and and we watched it and we get to the twist ending and we went, wait a second, what? And we ended up watching the movie over again just to catch all the things we missed that led up to the twist. I felt like that's what I wanted to do with us. As soon as it ended, I wanted to watch the whole thing again so I could catch everything that I missed. Uh, and and that, I mean, how much better of a movie can you get than one that you just want to keep watching over and over and over again? It takes a lot for that to happen for me. So, uh, so yeah. Yeah, this I is, pretty much was just yeah. replaying the movie in my head for the next couple of days. And I had some discussions with people about it. And I, I feel like I caught some things that, that they didn't catch. But I'm not really sure that they were actually part of the twist or if I'm, or if I'm like, fabricating them. But I, I feel like there's a lot of pieces that are sort of loose that you if you put them together you can make the movie even more different than it seems on the surface i didn't particularly love the twist i sort of saw it coming i think it's sort of the same twist that was even at the end of the one i love but what i liked about the movie is it didn't totally rely on the twist i mean you could sort of <clears throat> you could think that the twist was maybe a little lame or a little forced and still have an overall appreciation for the movie in fact you could still think the last shot was sort I, I didn't love the last shot i was like what what is this like what what, what is he trying to say here um I, I was totally confounded by it but i guess in a very like meta 2019 way um but still like the movie overall i think one of the differences between him and Shyamalan also is that I think overall Jordan Peele's a better writer um, I don't think we'll be watching like YouTube clips of the horrible dialogue in Jordan Peele movies 20 years from now like we do with Shyamalan <laughs> movies um, and I think that gives him a, a pretty big advantage overall so that, that's maybe why you know looking moving forward moving on we'll we pretty highly anticipate to see what he comes up with next well and I think that comes from his his background in comedy and and needing to keep things fresh for that and you have you have several guys out i know there were several movies last year zach that you zach and todd you really did not like but one thing you can say about them is you know peter Farrelly and adam mckay write fresh and even though it and even though it may have been tired stories or tired plots or things that you didn't necessarily like being told some of the dialogue was definitely fresh because they have to keep it fresh from their uh, background in comedy. That's what I feel. Mm -hmm. Especially when they say, this is fried chicken. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. We shouldn't even go there. We'll cut that out. <laughs> uh, so uh, we all give, uh, I, I think this is a thrice approved movie. Thrice approved. Us, thrice approved. But uh, and, and no, no if spoilers. you haven't, 
And no spoilers either. I mean, and this is, we did not go very much into the plot because you can't really go much into this plot without, uh, without starting to give stuff away. Uh, so if you haven't seen us, um, go out and see it. Like, like we said, we're not necessarily fans of the horror genre, but whenever Jordan Peele's making something, you can, uh, make it something that you can see because it's going to be quality, whether this is something you, uh, you like or not. I'm, I'm really interested to see what he does with the Twilight Zone, which is uh, his TV show coming out. I'm really bummed that it is only on CBS All Access, so you have to get the CBS streaming service. Again, all these crazy streaming services. I don't uh, know but, anyone uh, actually has that. I know, nobody actually has CBS All Access, so it's going to be this amazing thing that nobody is going to watch. How long before they actually just start playing it on on, uh, on TV? It's it's It can't be too long. Yeah, Hulu will get it at some point. Yeah, Jordan Peele does have a voice in Toy Story 4, though. That's true. Key and Peele make a return in Toy Story 4. Okay. So, uh, so yes, yeah, thrice approved on us. Go see it if you haven't seen it already. All right. Now, into our main event. This is our, our second uh, favorite feature uh, podcast that we are doing. Um, we are... Uh, you know, maybe be doing this about every other time, go into one of our favorite movies. And, um, the, I'd say the last one when we did almost famous, Todd definitely knew that one better than the two of us. Um, however, this film that we're going to do today is definitely right down mine and Zach's wheelhouse. And that is Apollo 13. Hey, we've got a problem here. What did you do? Nothing. I stirred the tanks. Whoa. Hey. Uh, this is Houston. Uh, say again, please. Houston, we have a problem. Uh, Zach and I actually became best friends because of our love of Apollo 13. <laughs> but in college, we started talking, and when we found out that we both thought Apollo 13 was one of the best films ever made, um, that's when that's like when we became best friends, wasn't it, Zach? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think I've probably seen this movie more than any other movie like ever. Um, I could quote every line of it and it, it turned me into a, a big space, uh, just fan, just NASA fan. I've, I've studied it. I, whenever I get a chance to write like historical research papers, I write it on the space program, uh, all because of this movie and the amazing, uh, the amazing story told in it. Uh, Zach, when did, uh, when did Apollo 13, uh, first come around for you well that's a great question i i would have to agree with terry that it's also the movie that i've seen the most times in my life uh because uh it came out when i was eight years old now what's curious is i don't remember if i saw it in a movie theater or not um i i remember a lot of movies i saw in the movie theater in the mid 90s growing up but this was one that i i don't really remember i i hope i did but at some point along the way uh as a preteen, i became obsessed with this movie maybe like terry and uh, we had the VHS copy. In fact, one of the running jokes that Terry and I have is about the VHS copy of this movie, especially yes. the previews of the VHS copy. Particularly, there's only one preview. There's, there's only, only one preview. There's only one preview, and that preview is to what, Terry? Sergeant Bilko. Sergeant Bilko, the Steve Martin. Sorry, comment. Steve Martin. <laughs> yep, from uh, the mid '90s. You woke me up for Reverie. Um, one. We're going for one. <laughs> I'm just so damn proud. 
Um, neither of us have actually seen neither Sergeant of us, Bilko. Neither of us have actually... I don't think anyone in the world has seen Sergeant Bilko. <laughs> we can just quote the trailer... Because yes. we always had to watch it whenever we watched Apollo 13. Exactly. It's yes. Like Point, Which and it's, it's it, yes, exactly. it's like it's like Vantage Point. It is it is the worst possible trailer to have before a movie like Apollo 13. Yeah, I mean, maybe there's like I don't know. I mean, there's some you know there's military maybe overlap a little bit. I don't maybe the same demographic with Light Sergeant Bilko, but it, it's nothing like Apollo 13. Um, although I guess we don't know. We've never seen it. Um, but and anyway, uh, yes, I've seen this movie more than any other movie. Um, I've loved this movie more than any other movie. After all these years, you know, 24 years later, it's still uh, on my top 10 list of all time. It'll probably never go off my top 10 list of all time, even though there may be flaws. It, which which we may discuss in this podcast, but uh, it, it, it's a it's an absolutely wonderful movie, and um, yes, it's it's amazing. Todd, Todd, what about your experiences watching it? Uh, well, I've probably seen it all the way through a good five times. Uh, I mean, I've seen parts of it a lot because I did grow up with Terry, and when he was wearing out the the VHS, <laughs> he was always was always on the TV in front of Terry, and it's always on TV now. It's just it's an easy movie to come in and watch some parts of. So. I don't know. I mean, I, I do love the movie. It's in my top five and ninety five, but I'm 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 not nearly on the level of you guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we completely nerd out on this. Todd just appreci- appreciates how great it is. So, uh, yeah, I I think it's fitting that we start our favorite features with the uh, with the two movies that we have sound clips in our opening uh, to our podcast for, because we have Gene Kranz saying "Give me a go, no go for lunch," and then we listen to Fever Dog. So. Um, by the way, I'm wearing a very fitting shirt for today. I'm wearing my Apollo 13 Failure is Not an Option shirt. So uh, so there you go. I picked this up awesome. when I was back at the uh, um, Air and Space Museum, Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. a couple years ago. So uh, I, I had to wear, I had to dress appropriate for the occasion. That's pretty awesome. I, I'm not wearing a special shirt, but I will say that I have a shirt that I call my Jim Lovell shirt because it is a red collared shirt that I wear with black pants to work, which is exactly the, the outfit that he wears in the opening sequence of the movie. That is amazing. That is amazing. Awesome. Okay, th- All right. and, and th- this is the level you should expect for this podcast. Because if, you, if you're already yes. turned off by this, then you know, go somewhere else. Go listen to some other stupid podcast. But this is, this is devotion right here. And if you haven't watched Apollo 13 before, go pause this podcast, go watch it, and then come back and listen to it. What are you doing if you haven't seen it? What, I know, what? I know. These people infuriate me. Yes, yes. <laughs> Okay, so uh, we're just going to kind of deep dive into all sorts of uh, different things with Apollo 13. Uh, Zach, why don't you get us started on what we want to talk about? Or why don't you tell us a little bit about, just remind everyone what Apollo 13 is all about. Okay, so Apollo 13 is the true story of the failed Apollo moon mission in April of 1970. So you have to remember, you know, one of the reasons we're doing this podcast is that we've had a couple movies come out recently about the Apollo 11 mission to the moon. Um, First Man and the recent documentary Apollo 11, which I saw. I don't know if you if you both have seen it yet. Really cool documentary. I haven't yet. Um, but, you know, there's, there's a time and place and maybe we're thinking about the space program and, you know, we have a president who's for some reason wants to invest in the space program again because he wants to divert all the attention away from his scandals. I don't know. But, uh, you know, uh, this movie is about this mission that uh, goes catastrophically wrong. And, um, you know, 
there are all these moving parts to it. Uh, the oxygen tank uh, it explodes, and and um, you know there's there's an issue with the oxygen and CO two infestation in the in the spaceship. There's an uh, issue with the water. There's an issue where you know they're halfway to the moon. How do they get back uh, to the planet Earth? There's even a freaking typhoon warning in this movie. Okay, <laughs> and of course the engine five uh, shutdown, which I don't think is as significant as the others, but you know maybe we'll get into that. Anyway, the bottom line is these three astronauts. You know. Jim Lovell, Fred Hayes, and Jack Swaggart, uh, Jackie Swag, as I like to call him, uh, they get stranded in outer space. They are reliant on mission control back home in Houston and the Lovell family, you know, pulling together and saving these three astronauts from what is destined to be uh, imminent uh, death. And so what's great about the movie is that even though this is this is a, a heroic and triumphant story, Ron Howard is really good at uh, escalating the tension in it so that even even after knowing the real life event in 1970, even after having seen this movie 50, 100, 150 times, you know, the fact that it's a triumph is still just uh, remarkable to watch and uh, full of emotion and, and a wonderful movie experience. Oh, that was a spoiler warning, I guess. But, you know, they get back alive, so... One of my favorite things about the about the movie is how it doesn't dumb itself down to the audience. Like it goes into some pretty advanced talk on what happens with this uh, with this spaceship as it's going to the moon and back. But um, it doesn't dumb itself down. It doesn't uh, try to make things sound simpler. It doesn't uh, you know simplify any of the jargon or anything. And you start to you understand what it all means by the end of it. Uh, you understand so much more about how the space program worked and how the Apollo just missions worked just simply by watching this movie, uh, even though it was just one. And one of the things that you said about the uh, about how they they triumph and they they uh, they make it back. One of uh, one of Ron Howard's favorite stories to tell about this movie is in one of the test screenings they had uh, for Apollo thirteen. Um, they had someone, uh, someone write on the on their uh, card at the end of it. Um, oh, I had it here. Hold on a second. Uh, someone wrote on their card that this was. Uh, they indicated total disdain for the movie because they they wrote it was a typical Hollywood ending because the crew would have never survived such a tragedy. And it's like, well, no, no, no. This is this is a true story. <laughs> You, you can't you can't chalk it up for being a Hollywood ending, even though it feels like a Hollywood ending in some ways. It, it's it's the true story of what actually happened. Yeah. And when this movie came out, it was nominated for a bunch of Oscars. You know, it was um, uh, a big budget movie. Um, it was really, if you think about it, Ron Howard's first real big spectacle. He up to that point, he hadn't really made big budget major uh, movies. He had done, you know some considerable ones like the paper and backdraft and a few others but like this was a big budget movie big oscar contender big oscar push and uh it was a flat out failure at the oscars uh when he didn't get nominated for best director in fact i think there's an one of the worst snubs uh, yes absolutely and look i mean braveheart's a good movie but let's get real okay i think you know 20 24 25 years later we we can say definitively that the academy got it very wrong that year um, in, in a number of ways. But I also think that 1995, not incidentally, was the first Oscar ceremony I watched. And I remember rooting for Apollo 13 that night. And I think that just built up my hatred and disdain of life and movies and the Oscars in general after the disappointment of, of the 95 Oscars. So and the other thing I remember... watching for the oh. next 24 years. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> He's a glutton for punishment. 
Uh, one of the other things I remember about that Oscars too is is Tom Hanks was coming off his back to back wins for yes. Philadelphia and Forrest Gump, and it's like okay, he did Philadelphia, he did Forrest Gump, ninety five is Apollo thirteen, and he's not even nominated. I mean, how can you not even nominate the guy who's the two time yes. reigning champ, and, and and his performance deserved a nomination too, and that's that's what made it sad. But uh, but yeah, definitely uh, definitely it was a disappointing Oscars for for Apollo thirteen successful failure once again exactly all right well are there categories we want to get into or or i have a few i think we all have a few where do we want to start oh let's see here i i have a suggestion to start because this is how we started almost famous last time and it was really i thought it was a really good way to start I okay think, i think we want to start with highest war performance because there are so okay. many great performances in this movie so i'm gonna throw it to you terry where do you where do you stand with the highest war so I was thinking about this, and uh, I mean, when we're talking about war, we're talking about most most irreplaceable, right? Mo- the the most uh, irreplaceable, not necessarily person, but actor, right? Like you, I could see nobody else playing this role, right? That's what we're looking at with war. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So if I'm if I'm having to pick the uh, the most irreplaceable actor in this movie, I'm going Ed Harris as Gene Kranz. Um, I think he he gives a performance that really that really grounds and centers the whole film. Everything once once the flight starts and once the mission starts, everything revolves around him and his uh, his presence that he's able to give to uh, to the role of Gene Kranz is is something that few people could could pull off. And I love what he does with that performance. I'm gonna say Ed Harris is my highest war. And, and he was one of the few that actually got some recognition for this movie. He was nominated for the Oscar. So uh, I think they recognized that he was important to this film, too. Well, and you could even say that he built a career out of it because after this movie, he was in Gravity and he was... Uh, Truman also, Show? In, well, but I'm also saying like he had a, the same he, character. He, he has some oh, yeah. characters that are very similar to Gene Kranz. And he was also, of course, John Glenn in The Right Stuff. So like... There, you know, when we think of space movies, if you don't have Ed Harris in your cast, you know, what are you doing? You know, or or movies where he's at the center of mission control. So, are you saying that that is one of the few flaws of First Man? Is Ed Harris was nowhere to be found? I think that is a flaw in First Man. <laughs> Absolutely. I don't even remember mission control in First Man, but Ed Harris should have been yeah, there. That's why. Yeah. Air bio mission. There you go. All right, Todd War. Uh, I mean, Ed Harris is one of the is one of the good ones, yeah. But I mean, I, I was thinking for highest war, I was gonna go with Kevin Bacon because I think that that character, it, like especially at that time, there aren't really a whole lot of people that I feel like could have done that the same way. He's almost like the prodigy, and he doesn't really get the recognition from everybody else, and he's like a ladies' man. I don't I don't really know at the time. I'm I'm not really sure there's anyone that had that kind of swagger and yet that kind of control with his acting that could have actually pulled that off the same way that Kevin Bacon did. Maybe maybe well, he, Brad Pitt, but I'd be like the only the only other option I think. So Brad Pitt almost Brad played Pitt him. Totally it, could have played Jack Swagger. And 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 Brad Pitt was offered the role first, but he chose 12 Monkeys over Apollo 13, which probably worked out for both of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it really did. 
All right, Zach, what are you saying? Uh, yeah, th- th- this is tough. Um, in a way, I kind of want to say Chris Ellis as Deke Slayton. I know that's sort of uh, out there a little bit, but when I think Deke Slayton, like I hear the name Deke Slayton in real life, I think that actor who played him in Apollo 13, I can't see <laughs> anyone else. Like, I, It's not really a great performance, but like the, just the physical look of this guy, he looks exactly like what I assume someone, a higher-up administrator at NASA would look like. But if we're talking about the main cast, I mean, it's hard to argue, especially with Ed Harris, I guess for the sake of argument, I would maybe go with Bill Paxton because I think Fred Hayes is someone who is a follower, not a leader, and he's also a country bumpkin. And um, it's I, 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 what other actor from the '90s? I mean, first of all, this this is a great mid '90s cast. Okay, everyone who was in this movie has been in like every mid '90s movie. Um, and if you're gonna have someone who you know grew up in Tennessee or not Tennessee, I'm sorry, I don't know why I even said Tennessee. I know he's from Mississippi. Um, someone from Mississippi who has you know, 18 children with his wife and never thought about, you know, <laughs> most of the guys he graduated from high school, you know, they, they didn't even have jobs. Um, if you're talking about some country bumpkin, okay, uh, that, you know, Bill Paxton was, would have been the best actor for that from the mid-90s with the possible exception of Billy Bob Thornton. And uh, it's hard to imagine Fred Hayes as anyone else. Ooh, Billy Bob would have been really interesting in that role. That's a great call. Yeah, okay, I, I think mean, we should it, go to worst performance because that sort of is a decent transition. <laughs> okay. okay, worst performance in the movie. There are two options. One is definitely Bill Paxton because I think he is kind of worthless <laughs> in this movie. He's like dumb. He has nothing interesting about him. He's a. It's. He's like, oh, how do you figure that? It's like I can add. Like of course. Like, like he has no idea like what's going on. Like I don't even know why he's there. And he's like, and he has that dumb line like. Oh, this piece of shit's gonna get you home. It's like, oh, okay, cool. You're, you're, like, <laughs> you're going like uber emotional there, and I don't know. I, I, I think that he, I think he just is kind of lousy, and I mean, it's um, it's almost like I don't even know why he's even on the trip. I don't really know what his actual job was or what his expertise was. It's like in Con Air. It's like you've been near death the entire trip, you know? Like that's basically <laughs> what he is. Like he's like half dead the whole time. Like why is he even there? So that's one, and the other bad performance is definitely Kathleen Quinlan. I I don't I think she is annoying, and I I she can't really portray any emotion. It's like a half-assed Sally Field performance. It, it's it's just bad. I have no idea why she was nominated for an Oscar, and I think that's it, it's those two. I think are terrible performances. So so just to clear this up for you, so Fred Hayes is on the trip. He was the lunar module pilot, so his job was to fly this the craft that was going to land on the moon. And since they never even got there, he didn't get to really do his job. So he didn't do, yeah, so he's there basically nothing. <laughs> and except to... Well, except to be sick the whole time, yeah. yeah. <laughs> blow chunks up yeah. on, on the way to the moon, like Frank Warman. <clears throat> so I'm going to say, I'm going to say my, my nomination for that is going to be whatever his name was that played Deke Slayton, because I think he does just a, he, it makes that, such an interesting character seems so useless and pointless and i'm i'm watching the last time i watched it i i've gotten to know the story well enough from researching other stuff around it that i was really starting to notice some of the flaws 
And one of the flaws is how they portray Deke Slayton as just this this company man that's going to say the company answer. Like He was a Mercury 7 astronaut, and the only reason he's in that role is because he had a health issue that grounded him before he ever got to fly. So he's a Mercury 7 astronaut, but only six of the seven made it to space because he couldn't do anything. So now he's this astronaut that is in charge of all the other astronauts. He's not a company man. He's not the one that's going to go ask for another estimate. He's actually going to be helpful. <laughs> Want the procedures now? <laughs> and so, and and, and they're, they're working on it now. I, no, no, no. It, 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 that's not what he's going to be. He's not going to be this like pushover guy. He's actually going to be. He, he's an astronaut. He's one of them. And he and they portray him as something less than that. So that that's what I'm going to say as the worst performance. I think you both are way off. I, 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 don't, I can't believe what I just listened to. That was terrible. Okay, well, let's start with Todd, all right? Fred Hayes is a follower. He's not a leader. You're supposed to sympathize with him as he goes through his sickness, okay? Like, it is so clear that the pressure is on Jim Lovell to, to head this spacecraft. He is, no, he is not equipped to do anything. It's obvious he is, he's a weak country bumpkin, okay? So, like, you're telling me that, you know, who else could play that role? I mean, you, you need someone who's frail and vulnerable, yet also an astronaut. So I think it's a really difficult role to play. Um, as for Terry, Deke Slayton is an insignificant role in this movie. If you wanted this movie to be about Deke Slayton, then go read the right stuff or something, okay? He's he's just meant to be a bureaucratic figurehead, so... You're it, the one that gave him the highest war! I don't... I'm just doing it for argument's sake. I think he's really... I, I think it's more based on physical resemblance than anything else. Uh, I will say, whenever I see him in anything else, I'm like, oh, hey, look, there's exactly, Deke Slayton. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. There's no yeah. other... I mean, who else in this movie would you think, oh, it's it's... His character from Apollo 13. I mean, he's iconic. Anybody else in Mission Control. <laughs> okay, maybe. But that's beside the point. He looks like he should be like a homicide detective. <laughs> yes. A little bit. A little bit. Okay, well, for, for my weakest performance, I mean, I can't choose anyone out of the main cast. I think this is one of the best casts of any mid-90s uh, movie. So I'm actually going to go a little bit out on a limb, and I'm going to go Mark Wheeler as Neil Armstrong and Larry Williams as Buzz Aldrin. who look Dude, I was thinking the same thing! They look absolutely <laughs> nothing like either Neil Armstrong or Buzz Aldrin. They don't really act like Neil Armstrong or Buzz Aldrin. They're in a thankless role, so it's not really their fault. But come on, I mean, look, you th there's no point to that scene except to show... Hey, look, there's Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, and they're watching it with Jim Lovell's mom. Why couldn't you have cast someone who looks at least a little more like these people in real life? Two of the most famous people in, in the history of human civilization. It's not that hard, Ron Howard. Agreed. Agreed. So no, no arguments with Kathleen Quinlan. There was a pretty bad performance. <laughs> we, we need to talk about Kathleen Quinlan. I mean... <sighs> I don't know. Let's move on. What's another category, Terry? What do you got? All right. Uh, well, we did best. We did highest war. We did worst performance. I'm going to go with MVP of the movie. Wow. MVP of the movie. Todd, going to you. Okay. For this, I, I have t uh, two options. One is uh, the Grumman guys who bit the lamb, obviously. Oh, my God. <laughs> Todd. <laughs> But Are you kidding me? The real MVP is definitely Gary. Well, they they got they got to keep their job. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely saved the whole mission, you know. Uh, uh, but the real MVP is Gary Sinise. I think he he's like 
he's like the ringer that they bring in. I mean, he's the, definitely the most qualified and best person that works for NASA, it seems like. He, he comes in and he like takes the control, he takes the headset, and he's basically running the entire thing ju uh, just because, you know, he he now is like the smartest guy in the room and he doesn't bitch about not being on the crew. He's just, he j he, he really is the only reason why anything worked and he, he respects Jack and he knows that he's like super smart and so they have like a rapport that he, like Jack doesn't have with anybody else. It's like, it, the whole thing is, uh, yeah, Gary Sinise is, it, he's the MVP in character yeah, and Mad in performance. <laughs> yeah, Ken Mattingly has to be the MVP of this. I, I'm, go I'm going the same thing. Uh, he, uh, and nope, it, it was one of those where everything just kind of worked out perfectly because no one knew that spaceship better than he did. And it just so happened that he didn't get sick. He's on the ground. He's able to figure things out because, yeah, he'd been studying this ship for a year. And now he actually gets to put it to use in a special way to get them home. Yeah, he's MVP for me. Zach? Uh, I think Ken Mattingly is a sound choice, and I think he's a fascinating character. Um, I was reading a little bit about this movie, and uh, I did not realize this until I just rewatched it. Do you realize that Ken Mattingly was also a bachelor at this time? Now, the movie makes such a big deal about Jackie Swag, you know, getting with the ladies, <laughs> and, you know, he's a ladies' man. He's taking nylons and Hershey bars up to the moon. And yet, Ken Mattingly was not married either. That's not even mentioned in the movie. You must have known was, about this, right, Terry? I was, I, I actually didn't. And I was wondering about that. I'm like, where's Mrs. Mattingly? Exactly. I mean, we see, we see all the other wives, and we never hear anything about Ken's wife. So he was, he was a bachelor at the time too. Then. So we yeah. would have seen the, the, the guy say that about Ken Mattingly. I don't think we would have because, I mean, it doesn't matter. He's a bachelor. He's like an older guy. Like. The reason why it's relevant with Jack is because he's, like, a guy who's, like, what, in his 20s or something? It's, that's what it comes off like, you know? Well, and, and maybe maybe that, that, that gives a whole new perspective to when he's watching Dick Cavett on TV and they're talking about, you know, Jack Swigert's the first Bachelor to go to the moon. Not only is he saying, man, that should have been me, but, man, I should have been the first Bachelor going to the moon. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes. So there's a, a few more interesting factoids about Ken Mattingly. He actually got married two months after the Apollo 13 mission. Wow. So I, I take that for what it's worth. And this is the most interesting fact of all. When he went up on a fall, Apollo 16 and, you know, manned the shuttle like they talk about the last scene in the movie, um, he actually lost his wedding ring on board the ship and they were never able to retrieve it. Oh, that's fascinating. Th yeah. So did, so did uh, Mrs. Lovell actually lose her wedding ring, or is that like some yes. sort of like that? That yes. is an actual thing. That is yes, absolutely that, that true is, story. Yep. However, she was able to retrieve it. Yeah, she was able to find it. Um, the original question was about MVP of the movie. I don't really have an issue with Ken Mattingly. I went a little bit more abstract for the MVP of the movie. Um, I went with James Horner because I can't imagine Apollo 13 without uh, the, the James Horner score. And we can talk about that. Yeah, I guess if we're talking about just the character you know, world of the movie, then absolutely Ken Mattingly is the MVP. But if we're talking about the movie as a whole, uh, James Horner wins this movie. I mean, his score is unbelievable. You know, And you can say what you want about James Horner. You know, He was a little bit shrewd. He sometimes replicated his scores in other movies. Sometimes he was accused of um, derivating his scores from other scores that either he wrote or someone else wrote. But this is one of his best scores of the 90s, and I'm astonished that it did not win. You know, screw you, Il Postino. This is a much better score. He should have won his Oscar for this, and uh, this movie could not have been made without James Horner.
So last time we I, did MVP, we like <laughs> we both said something technical, and you said a character, and now you're going. And the you gave us way. crap for it. Yeah, <laughs> I don't so, remember that. <laughs> you said you said Sapphire was the MVP of Almost Famous. Yeah. Well, maybe yeah, one of these on. days we'll be on the same page. Maybe. Okay. Well, well, since you mentioned that, <laughs> your I actually. Then. <laughs> I, I I was thinking about this too because yeah I I was thinking Ken if we were talking about a character. Uh, if you're talking about MVP in that other sense, this is my all-time favorite score, and James Horner is the one that, that makes that happen. Um, I find it interesting that he ended up winning best score a couple years later for Titanic, which ripped off a lot of Apollo 13's score. Like, you can hear bits and pieces of Apollo 13 in Titanic's score. Um, but I'm going to go two other places for, for MVP of the film, of the making of the film. And that is the one is the editing department, because um, the way they were able to edit, especially what happened in the spacecraft. I mean, they they actually went up into what they call the vomit comet, this airplane that would go up and do this loop, so they could get like to get some weightlessness to understand how it feels. They would go up and do that and get like twenty seconds of footage at a time, where they were weightless, and um, they did this like two hundred times to get the footage and some of the footage of them inside Apollo 13 is uh, is from that and some of it is taken from on the ground and it's so seamless you can't tell what is perceived weightlessness and what is actual weightlessness and the fact that they were able to splice together these 20 second clips of them being able to, to film this and make it look seamless was astounding. So that's one that I'm going to say the other one is the special effects department. Um, how they were able to to put together, especially the launch. Um, and NASA ended up using the footage that Ron Howard made for this launch in their own uh, in their own films after this because he did such a good job. And I even remember um, hearing Ron Howard say at one point that when they finished it, it was so polished they actually had to go back and and make it less polished because it was so polished it almost didn't look real. Um, and People like Buzz Aldrin saw it and said that they must have found some archival footage from NASA that nobody knew about because it was so good. So those are my two MVPs, the editing department and special effects. Yeah, I, I love the story about Buzz Aldrin uh, because, like, I, I just find that hilarious that, you know, like, in Ron Howard's commentary, he talks about how Buzz Aldrin came to him after the movie and was like, hey, can we use can we use that? Like, who are you, Buzz Aldrin? Do you just, like, work for NASA? <laughs> I mean, you're just, you know, you're a company man. You're just going to take the footage and use it for NASA. That's who your identity is. But, uh, but, but yeah, that, that's, that, that, that's pretty awesome. You could make an argument that Apollo 13 should have been nominated for every Oscar in every category with the exception of Best Actress and Best Original Screenplay because it wouldn't have been eligible. Yes, I agree. I agree. I Todd, do you... Costumes. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it it was not nominated for for best costumes. Todd, do you know the costume winner from nineteen ninety five? This is a good trivia question. Probably Sense and Sensibility. Uh, no, that that's got, what I was gonna say. That got a nomination, but it was not the winner. The winner was Restoration. I don't know what that is. Uh, it's, that you know, that was the second thing. I, that was my second guess. It, it's a Miramax film with Robert Downey Jr. as a seventeenth century medical student exploited by the king, according to Wikipedia. I Obviously. vaguely rem- remember that from when Terry and I went through the Oscars when he was doing the 95 thing for the website. Oh, yeah. I vaguely remember <laughs> that, too. Okay, does anybody else have another uh, have another category we want to get to? Because okay. I've, got, I've got some more, too. But 
Someone else. Okay, oh. I got a stupid category I want. Oh, sorry. Okay, go I'll, I'll, we'll do this and then we'll go, go for you, Todd. All right. So, I have a category just for this movie called Family Power Rankings. This, mo- this movie has a lot of family members in it. It has family members of the Lovells, because we see all four Lovell children plus the Lovell grandma. And it also has a lot of Howard family members, like Ron, Ron's brother, uh, uh, who plays Cy. Point. Yeah, I forgot his name. Sorry. And uh, <laughs> we also have Ron Howard's father. What's his name? He plays the priest. Rance. Rance. And we also have his mother, Jean. Is that right? And I she, think so. And she plays uh, Jim Lovell's mother. So I, I'm just curious. Who, you know, give me uh, the best family member, either a Lovell family member or a Howard family member in this movie. Okay. The best family member is definitely Susan Lovell. Who is the youngest daughter? <laughs> I think she is hilarious because of how much shit she's given Barbara the whole time. Because Barbara's a <laughs> whiny little girl, and like she, like I, I think she's a pretty annoying character. And Susan is, really is just like the an- antagonizer, and that's kind of the way I was to Terry for a lot of my life. <laughs> so I feel like I relate to Susan level, and so she's my favorite. <laughs> uh, I. I, I, I I was totally prepared to give it to Susan Lovell. I agree. I think she has some great one-liners about Barbara and about the family, and you can you can see everything. Um, but the only thing I would say against Susan Howard, she's a bad or sorry, Susan Lovell, she's a bad crier. If you watch like the last scene of that movie when they're just about to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, it is totally fake crying. That little girl needed to get a little bit better with her crying. Maybe she developed and became a more natural crier, but bad crying, fake cry. So, so my my number one, my number one has to be the only one that qualifies in both categories, and that is Gene Howard, who plays Blanche Lovell. Um, she, she plays this just crotchety old woman in the, in the nursing home. He's supposed to be on, he's in outer space. (laughs) And, uh, but then, then when it, when needed, she's like the rock that holds everything together. Well, don't you worry, honey. (laughs) If they could get a washing machine to fly, my Jimmy could. She's almost Jimmy Stewart in some ways in that accent. Your imitation's Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, that's what it is. (laughs) Or you say, but no, she's she's the MVP. And then, uh, however, I will say one of the other categories I have is, um, and she she's all over that one is is the corniest lines in it because there are some pretty corny lines, and I think one of those is when she looks at Neil and Buzz and says, "Are you boys in the space program too?" Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's a reason why it was not nominated for an adapted screenplay Oscar. I think there are <laughs> the writing is not that great <laughs> <laughs> all right all right zach you give you give your your top family member then we're gonna go- talk about corny lines okay that, that that's great um i think overall i have to agree with terry when i come came up with this category i i said gene lovell as well um you know she she steals the show in this movie according to the commentary i watched both by the way if you have the blu-ray there's some great commentaries the jim lovell and marilyn lovell commentary is really good the ron howard commentary is very good so um ron howard says in his commentary that he actually auditioned his mom three times which makes me think that he had very little faith in her ability to act 
He also had a really good story about his mother when he won Best Director in 2001 for A Beautiful Mind, which maybe we'll talk about a little later. Uh, but he said his mom predicted that he would win Best Director for A Beautiful Mind. And then everyone clapped. And then he, and then he said, she also predicted it for every movie I made since 1983. So it's not that amazing. Um, <laughs> I think the, uh, the, the family member that I'm going to give the award to is little Jeffrey. Um, little Jeffrey has, has a big, has some big scenes in the movie where he has to go up against Tom Hanks and he has to be cute and subtle and well, not subtle, but you know, he has to ask questions about the spaceship and Marilyn has to talk to him about, you know, your daddy had an accident, you know, and, and it, it's really kind of messed up because he just heard that really traumatic story about the door not opening and uh, everyone dying. So, you know, a lot of trauma for that kid later in life. However, we'll also talk about flaws in this movie. One of the flaws that I'll just say right now, how does little Jeffrey not have astronaut pajamas? He has an astronaut blanket. He has an astronaut like lamp. He's got everything in his bedroom as an astronaut and his pajamas are cowboy pajamas. Are you kidding me, Ron Howard? Come on, let's get the details a little right here. Um, but, Did he but have Jeffrey... part in Toy Story or something? Is that... <laughs> Maybe <laughs> <had> cowboy pajamas <laughs> and space ranger, everything else. <laughs> that yes. that must be it. That must Same be it. Year. Uh, <laughs> it. It was. Maybe there was some cross marketing between this movie and Toy Story. See, I can't see that kid and not see the little kid from Kindergarten Cop. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know yeah. that. I, I didn't even realize yeah, he, he was in Kindergarten the, Cop. The, yeah, he's a little. Boys, boys have a penis. Too. Girls really? have a vagina. Man, there, yeah. were, there were only like 10 kid actors from the 90s, and they were in every movie together, so I guess that's true. <laughs> okay, so so we're talking a little bit about flaws. Let's talk about some of the some of the flaws and some of the corny dialogue here. Yes. So I've already mentioned one. I'm going to mention one more, and then I'll toss it to you guys. Uh, I have some other ones, too. But um, one of the ones I caught in this was right after the uh, the explosion happens... And you get the Houston, we have a problem. And they're going through everything, and, and Mission Control is freaking out. Um, the, uh, the, the line that, I, that I, I heard, and it just made me laugh this, the last couple times I've watched it, um, comes from possibly the biggest punching bag of the entire movie, and that is, um, and that is uh, the flight surgeon. Yes. And he, he comes on, flight, their heart rates are skyrocketing. <laughs> Well, no, no, duh. Their <laughs> their ship just exploded. <laughs> but yeah, it's like it's like all this stuff. All this stuff is wrong with the ship. Their heart rates are up. Well, yeah. Just shut up and let us do our job. So that was that was one that gave that I was just. It makes me laugh every time I hear it now. Basically, anytime I hear him talk, it makes me laugh. All right, what other corny lines you guys got? Well, the the little the the son, I I feel like it was a line that just happened, and then I feel like they could have cut it out, but they didn't, and that's "Mommy, you're squishing me." Like, like why the hell is that even in the movie? <laughs> Every that time needs to be like, in our I'm intro. Like, like what? <laughs> <laughs> Mommy, you're squishing me. Uh, Zach, do you got one? Yes, I do. Actually, it also comes from the Lovell and Hayes families. Um, I've always been bothered by the jokes that the wives that the wives make um, when they are at the launch. So, for example, when uh, when Marilyn Lovell sees uh, Mary Hayes, she's pregnant, 
it's kind of interesting that it doesn't seem like they've seen each other very much. It doesn't really give the impression that they're very friendly with each other. And Mary Hayes was not at the uh, Apollo 11 watch party, which is curious. But anyway, Mary Hayes says, 30 days till this blast off, alluding to her pregnancy. Like, give me a break. That's such a stupid line. And then later, after the sh- the rocket ship has launched... Um, the uh, Marilyn Lovell says to her, if a flight surgeon had to okay me for this mission, I'd be grounded. I mean, that is just, that's, that's terrible dialogue. I don't know. And and it, it, it certainly reiterates what Todd is saying about possibly Kathleen Quinlan being the LVP of this movie. There are other jokes made in this movie, but the, but, the, but those jokes are, 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 are kind of bad. So that, that just reminded me of something that I, or I made me think of something. So Mary Hayes is at the launch. She's, and she's a month away from her from you know she's eight months pregnant isn't there a limit to how pregnant you can be and still be able to you know fly and the the launch is in florida and she lives in houston maybe they drove with all 25 of their kids maybe i that's i don't know that's i just thought of that that's kind of strange and so one of the things with how how well they know each other this is something i've learned from some of the other stuff i've watched um, all the NASA astronauts, they all ended up living in like the same neighborhood in Houston. Like this development, like started up as NASA which was starting, which you and, see in first man, first man sort of yeah, portrays that. Yeah. yeah. And, and so ev- all the a- NASA astronauts all lived in the same neighborhood. They were all neighbors with each other and all the wives were really good friends. So even though it doesn't portray it that much, um, there, they were, uh, they knew each other and probably knew each other quite well, especially with their husbands being on the same flight. Um, I think I think I think uh, Marilyn thinks she's a little better than Mary. I think she's just a little little like she's she she's, she's experienced. A she's she's a been around a little while. She's a little bougie. She thinks she's a little better. <laughs> she she doesn't have thirty five kids from Mississippi. I think she's just this, a little better than that. This is her fourth time doing this. <laughs> uh, the other wives have not done three. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. Hey, by the way, where are Jackie Swag's girlfriends? They are not even at the launch. They are prob- no, but they they made sure to show up for the night party. They though. were at the night party for sure, <laughs> but they were not at the. Where is that girl in the in the shower? You know, where is Tracy? I mean, none of these girls show up for Jack. We don't we don't see them at all uh, for the movie. Where are they? You know, they are probably at a Stillwater concert. That is my answer. I really don't think that was his girlfriend. I think that was just some girl that he met there. <laughs> and then he went back. Well, he's got, and then he, he's got a girl in every port. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. That's why so, we don't even have to talk. He's the biggest stick man for sure. Well, yeah, exactly. So so if you've listened to this podcast a few podcast episodes ago, we did the, the biggest stick man. My biggest stick man all time is Jackie Swag in this movie. Because, you know, we got Tracy at the beginning of the movie. We got that girl in the shower uh, when he's supposed to be. He's supposed to be making the guest list. And he is, like, in the shower with this girl that he met at the Safari Inn somewhere in Florida. Give me a break. <laughs> and we get the girls at the, uh, at, at the launch. And, you know, Jackie Swag is getting it in. He's taking nylons and Hershey bars to the moon. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Was there any other candidate for biggest stick man in this movie? No, well, no, not really. Exactly. I mean, no, no. So, so, so should we should we say know, biggest can, stick man? Can not get some tail. I don't know. But see, here's the thing with. <laughs> but he's though. allowed to get married. He, well, yeah, right. And, and what they said, we don't know that though. <laughs> 
I forgot to say this. So apparently in real life, Ken Mattingly, who was also a bachelor, no one ever talked about that because all he did was, in his bachelor life, all he did was um, prepare and, and practice. And he was in the simulator, like, all the time. And the movie makes a point about that, how he wants to, you know, I got to do it again. His turn wasn't right, right? So that is, you know, that was Ken Mattingly's life. He wasn't getting these girls, you know, in Florida in a shower, right? He wasn't bringing nylons and Hershey bars. So, um I don't know where I'm going with this. He he was ruining his bachelor years. Okay, Wasting so so it. let's say let's say uh, minus Jack, biggest stick man. Ooh. Or 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 yeah yeah, minus Jack, biggest stick man. <laughs> the, the, uh, that, that that's a tough question. Hmm, that is a tough question. Maybe Glenn. You know, Glenn could have, he had the pickup line, you know, hey, you know, I'm, I, I, I do the uh, Capcom, you know, I'm, uh, I'm in NASA, I'm a young guy, I got the red hair, you know, maybe he's getting it in, I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm sure, what about Neil Armstrong, it's gotta be him, right? <laughs> but he was married, and he had uh, no personality, as we learned from First Man. What about, uh, what about, what's his name, Henry? I'm going Henry. Oh, uh, the, 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 well, uh, we we have Terry and I have talked about how we we do think that Henry kind of hits on Jim Lovell's daughter a little bit at the uh, totally does yeah yeah why don't you explain that Terry what happens so so he he's he, at the at the broadcast he's talking with the with the family and stuff and they're on their way out he goes out of his way to stick his face in front of her face and say bye. <laughs> and, and and she's like this sixteen year old girl and just kind of sticks his face right in right in her face and it's like oh let me get my face uncomfortably close to yours and say bye little girl I mean yeah it it's pretty creepy it's pretty creepy this movie though um, is sort of a Mount Olympus of like non stick men I mean none of <laughs> there's no stick man in this movie what really whatsoever except for Jack I mean that's why he sticks out so much he's probably not we, even that great of a stick man he just by comparison he's that much better we we joked about this at one point and I said well obviously the greatest stick man has to be Cy played by Clint Howard sure but <laughs> all right so th- this kind of yeah. gets to one of my categories I want to know uh, the, your favorite NASA employee other than the astronauts and Gene <laughs> oh great question uh, Ooh, favorite NASA employee. Um, I I got one. Okay, what's yours? Favorite NASA employee for me is Retro. When I see him in the movie, I I guess there's different retros, but um, when I see the fat guy, you know what I think of? (laughs) I think of fat guy in a little suit. He's got, you know, that tie that is, it doesn't extend over his belly. He's a little too fat for his clothes. He's talking about how the free return trajectory won't work because he, they just no, should turn around. No, he's the one arguing right, for it. No, he's, he's saying the they should turn around right oh, now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, yeah, he doesn't board. believe yeah. in the idea of going around the moon. Get him about face right now. We're turning back home. And then later in the movie, he talks about the cyclone warning. And uh, I just love Retro and his fat guy in a little suit. His tie is about five inches too short. Oh, that's a that's a good one. I like. Uh, I mean, I I've always I've always liked John, the one that uh, that comes up and says power is everything. We got to turn everything off, and the one that helps Ken 
get the ampage you know, right. You could make an is argument it three for, or four amps. You could make an argument for John being a stick man. I bet he got in. I was watching I, this. I was watching this movie with my wife, and she said that of all the NASA men, she would have, she would have been chosen him. So See, he, well, because he's he's the quiet one that just sits back and watches, exactly. and then it's like, hey, wait, no, I'm gonna speak up now because I have the answer. I, I'm gonna say Todd's Todd's favorite has to be FAO because it's played by Todd Luiso. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, that is Dick. A, that is a decent call, but <laughs> Dick is in this movie. I don't know. Yes, my favorite favorite one actually is the flight surgeon surgeon dr chuck because honestly <laughs> he's he's like, he is completely out on his own and he's like bothering everybody because he's i feel like the only one in that entire room that actually has a real defined job like everyone else is kind of doing everything they're all like running numbers and stuff they all feel that like, is true i feel like they're all doing the exact same thing except for him he's the surgeon and he's resilient i feel like they're trying to make him out to be dumb and like dr chilton or something like that but I mean, I, I don't know. I respect the guy for going out on his own, and because if the if the crew was like impaired, the flight plan wouldn't matter because they wouldn't be able to perform it. <laughs> so and so he's the only one that's actually doing his real job, and I, I really like that. And because of that, he's the one that everybody hates. Yeah, <laughs> but I like I like that he he, he keeps at it though. I've also always like I don't know who he is I don't know what what his name is but he's he's a guy with the black hair and the glasses that doesn't sugarcoat anything and and they're just all gonna says, burn up and die yeah <laughs> they blow up and they die yep. <laughs> I've always liked him <laughs> I like him too I was thinking about picking him Terry that's a good one uh, or 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 the other guy that um that ends up being. Oh, he he's in Oh Brother Where Art Thou. He's the 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 mayor in Oh Brother Where Art Thou. There's, you can't run a vacuum cleaner on twelve amps, John. <laughs> <laughs> I also like the guy who, when they're returning and they're entering, re-entering the atmosphere, he just whispers to the other guy, "It's all about the heat shield." Yeah, no shit, dumb shit. <laughs> like that's the only thing that's keeping them alive. I think we all know that at this point. Okay. I want to get a little more specific on this, and this might sound a little nerdy, but my, my I'm going to get a little more specific on on favorite uh, on favorite favorite NASA employee. I want to ask favorite Capcom. So Capcom is short for Capsule Communicator, and if you know anything about NASA, one of the things that they established very very early on in NASA is the only people that can talk to the astronauts are other astronauts. So everyone that actually talks to them, everyone that's that runs Capcom is an actual astronaut. So there's four options. There's there's the Johnny Cash guy uh, who's there for the majority of the time that acts like he has no idea what he's doing. Andy. Uh, you've got you've got the redhead. Glenn. And yeah, Glenn and Deke actually talks to them briefly at one point and Ken. Those are your four Capcoms. Who's your favorite Capcom? Clearly Andy, because he's going to take his whole Johnny Cash collection up on Apollo 19, which I've always <laughs> wondered about. Is that a joke, or was that real? Was he slated what? to go up on Apollo 19? Uh, he, he must have been. I don't know. He must have been. I, I, What's interesting is he ambiguous. doesn't even have a name, but he has... He's Andy. He, he, that's his name. No, Andy. Andy's a different guy. No, Andy's he's a not. That's, no, that's yeah, Andy. Yeah, it is. How much do you no, want to and, bet? We got to make a bet and, on this. Andy's like Gene's backup. No, as, it's not. As that's a, the Johnny yeah. Cash guy. How much do you want to bet, Terry? Uh, this is like the Boston in, in our last podcast about Almost Famous. That His name is Andy. Hey, you know, no. they're on Box Andy? He tell, that's what they say. 
No, Andy's the guy who looks like Anthony Edwards. That's that's Gene Kranz's backup. It's like, wait. Oh, you're crazy. Do they not have the control? guy behind him? Who he did we miss about something? The, the, yeah. the Richard Nixon odds? No, that's not Andy. You're crazy. That's Andy. No, that's Andy. Twenty burrs right now. Twenty burrs. Twenty burrs. I don't want. No one wants to make that bet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the loser would be the winner in that bet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, I, I love how in in the in the actual cast they're just listed as Capcom One and Capcom Two for for uh for the those two and then the other two just kind of pop up later on um okay todd what do you say favorite capcom well i don't know i mean i i really think it's just got to be ken i mean like when he shows up and he takes over the reins like he he's already like cracking jokes and he makes the surgeon feel like a dumbass and stuff like immediately it's 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 awesome like there's he's got to be the best one yeah he, he's he's pretty good yeah. i do like I do like the Johnny Cash guy. I may have to Andy. say he's yeah, he's not Andy. I may have to say he might be my favorite. When he makes the Johnny Cash line, he's sitting there eating like a meatball sub. Yeah, I like that too. When I go up under a nineteen, he missed my entire collection of Johnny Cash. Um, and 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 like I said, he seems to not know what he's talking about, even though he's an astronaut. Like when he asks him to close the close the react valves, he's like, the tanks. he's, he's the gonna he's the... gonna ask it, or he wants they want you to close the react valves <laughs> on cells one and yeah, three. <laughs> and 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 then he, he also has it. he wasn't he wasn't acting like he didn't know what he was talking about. He was trying to downplay it to tell them to not like get them no, pissed that they're. I agree with Terry. I agree with Terry. He sounds confused. That is He's like, not close the, the react So, okay. He also has has possibly my favorite corny line in the entire thing, and that is after Jim Lovell realizes that their that their oxygen is leaking out into space, and we're venting something out into space, and everything is quiet, and he breaks a quiet with, "Roger, we copy your venting." <laughs> like that's just a stupid way of phrasing it, but okay. And and all right, so that actor. Another thing I like about about uh, him is that actor. Um, a couple years later, they make From the Earth to the Moon, which is the HBO miniseries that kind of chronicles everything from from Mercury all the way through um, the Apollo program. And he plays Dave Scott, who is the commander of Apollo 16, which is when Ken Mattingly actually got to go into space. So. Um, I always thought that was kind of a neat connection there. A lot of the actors that play random roles in Apollo 13 end up playing more prominent parts in uh, in From the Earth to the Moon. Like yeah. the guy who plays Conrad in uh, in Apollo 13, he plays uh, Frank Borman in uh, From the Earth to the Moon. Yeah. Which is kind of cool. Or as my wife was telling me last night, uh, all, all these actors from Mission Control also to ha- apparently went to have roles on Grey's Anatomy, which I, I didn't know. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Well, when a show like that runs for that long, they're going to have pretty much everyone in Hollywood on it. For sure. Okay. All right. Uh, do we have anything else we want to talk about? Yes. Okay. Any other categories? Uh, biggest okay. flaw in the movie. Okay. There, there, biggest there, there, flaw. A lot of candidates here, but I'll, we'll kind of open it up. What, what do you think, Terry? Biggest flaw. Um... Let's see here. One of the things that I noticed... Um, uh, the more I watch it, is some of the uh, some of the continuity issues. Like this last time I watched it, one of the things I noticed is um, so when they first come out with the television broadcast and it's Jules Bergman um, talking about everything, he is it, it's kind of on in the background as Marilyn is talking to NASA, but he's revealing things that they haven't talked about yet. 
Like he's talking about in that broadcast how they're going to use the Lem as a lifeboat and they're going to use that engine to go on a free return trajectory. And like 10 minutes later, they have the meeting in the room talking about whether to do a direct abort or a free return trajectory. So there's some continuity things there with some of the archival footage. The other thing that always bothered me was the, um, the uh, closing voiceover by Jim Lovell. I, I, it, I mean, it, it wraps it up in a way I don't know what else could have, I'm, but I always you start with voiceover by Walter Cronkite, you end with voiceover by Jim Lovell, but that voiceover, it just didn't fit because nothing else has voiceover on it. And all of a sudden you bust out voiceover to end the movie. I always thought that was a problem. That's the way they did things. I mean, that's the same way like Platoon ends too. It like doesn't really fit, but it's kind of the way you kind of had to end it, I guess. Yeah, it was but a- Platoon, Platoon had voiceover kind of throughout, though, as he's writing his journal entries. It, it, it is a very, like, 80s and 90s trope. It do- you're right, it doesn't quite fit. However, on the commentary track, Ron Howard talks about how um, they were on the last day of shooting, and just kind of for fun, they had uh, Tom Hanks read off some lines, and that ultimately ended up being the, the final narration. And it sounds like they didn't really know how to end the movie. They, they weren't quite sure, like, what to do. And um, he just kept on going back to these kind of random lines that they just kind of wrote the last day of shooting that were so- somewhat random and somewhat uh, improvised. And uh, he just kind of went with it. So I don't know if that was totally pre-planned or not. But What would have made it better is if the actual Jim Lovell had read those lines. Well, the actual Jim Lovell was on the boat, you know. He yes, was, He was yes. there giving the uh, at-ease soldier, you know, in his uh, Navy but, outfit. But if he <clears> had <throat> if he had been the one that read the just kind of the summation of how everything went, I think it would have gone a lot better. I, I have to personally say I completely disagree with everything you, you just said, Terry. I, I really like the narration at the end. I, I think it works really well in the movie. And All right, it, well, what, and, well, what do you Andy say is the biggest flaw? Andy would agree. Um, okay, uh, biggest flaw in the movie. Uh, I'm going to go with um, the idea of Jim Lovell getting drunk off champagne. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, I, just give me a break. I mean, He did buy a whole you know, box of it, though. That's true. Last box in Houston. They, they were sold out. Um, yeah, I just have a hard time believing that he got drunk off champagne. I was really trying to deconstruct that scene. It does appear that there is a beer bottle and potentially a uh, a mixed drink on the little platform next to the lawn chairs that they're in, but it really does appear that he's drunk off champagne, which is, uh, I think, pretty pretty inaccurate. That, that has to be. The other flaw in the movie... Um, is that when Barbara Lovell is, uh, you know, the, the, the oldest daughter, when she's talking about how she's mad at the Beatles for breaking up, she's not even listening to the Beatles. She's listening to uh, Jimi yes! Hendrix. Yes! <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I thought about that, but then also she says right after, no one can ever play another one of their records. So that's, that I, might yeah, be why she's not listening to it, but I was saying the exact same thing. Actually, what my wife said, too, we kind of watched the scene a couple times. We, we sort of deconstructed it, and she does sort of mumble something like that. But And she's apparently mad at Paul for some reason. I'm not really sure why, but uh, it, because really John was the reason they broke up. But um, uh, it just is sort of a flaw. If she's really that upset about the Beatles, she should be listening to their music. I take it as, I, I always thought of it as everyone was probably either a John person or a Paul person. And so if they broke up and you were a John person, it had to be because of Paul. Apparently, Barbara was not a great kid in real life. The, 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 the Lovells do not have a very uh, crowning opinion of her in their commentary. <laughs> <laughs> they kind of diss on their own daughter. 
All right, Todd, what do you got? Okay, I got a couple. One is, I, I think it's a little ridiculous to think that there would be a single unguarded switch that could disable the entire fuel cell that can't be undone. Especially in an, in a, in a, in an area where Fred like accidentally turns on the, the Vox and they're like, got a hot mic and stuff. Like, he doesn't even know that he did that. Like, they could accidentally flip the switch and like disable the entire spacecraft, essentially. And it doesn't even have a, a, like a guard on it. Yeah, so many other ones have little guards, but that one doesn't. I thought about that, too. That's a good one. Or that Jack has to put the little sticky over the the thing that's going to get rid of the limb. (laughs) Hey, Jim thinks it's a good idea. It was good good thinking. That was the name of my fantasy football team this year. Good thinking. And the other one is, I I honestly think the movie should have been rated R. Because... Great point. I, I, I think, like, especially when you got corny stuff that say, like, that's just flight man bullshit. Like, that is, I mean, that just sounds stupid when he says it. Like, you would have so much more, like, heightened intensity if it would have been, like, an Aaron Sorkin script or something. And it would have been a lot more, like, snappy and, and, and people would have talked the way you actually talk and not try to make it PG. And plus, like, Jax, you know, he's a ladies man. He should have, like, nailed that chick. <laughs> Like in the beginning, should have seen more I in mean, the shower. Yeah, especially and it, it was at the time around like wild things. Like he was like a hot commodity thing. Like the whole like bacon bits and all that, whatever. Like shit, you could have easily made this movie rated R and have a whole bunch more like appeal and gotten a whole bunch more people to watch the movie. But you know, instead it's PG and it just kind of sounds corny at times. Well, and it's it's a it's a terrible PG movie too. I mean, yes. I watch it. I'm like, there's no way this is a PG movie. It's PG thirteen. That is exactly what I thought you were gonna say, Todd. Ter- Terry's exactly right. How is this movie a PG? There is so much swearing in this movie. There's so much cigarette smoking. This is not a kids movie. But then you remember from the '90s, there were several movies that inexplicably had PG ratings for like no reason, like the Spanish Prisoner, the David Mamet movie. That was PG. I'm not really sure why. And like all these directors, like. Like, um, you know, uh, David Lynch made The Straight Story, which was G. I mean, there were, like, adult movies that for some reason had PG and G ratings. And this was the, one of the last movies that was not a kid's movie that was rated PG. My favorite favorite example of that is Top Gun. Top Gun is a PG movie. There's Terms of several people, is a PG movie. It has two There's several people flipping people off, and there's a love scene in Top Gun, and it's it's PG. I, um, I I do agree with Todd though. We we needed more sex scenes in this movie, the, particularly the, with the Jack Swagger character. I think you're right. I think there was plenty of opportunity for that. Not that it would have had anything to do with the movie, but you know, let's give it an R, okay? No one cares. Or 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 you just continue the scene in the backyard a little bit with, um, with yes. where he's drunk off the cham- champagne idea. and uh, <laughs> and while while she while she looks at Mount Marilyn, he mounts Marilyn. Oh, <laughs> there it is. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> all right um i've got i've got one other flaw and it's a really minor one but why does gene even bother with the overhead projector oh i mean a great it, point it it, it it yeah it busts out immediately which is really funny but what's what's the point why it's do you even bother sh- with an overhead projector it's just show that that he's like totally old school and he's just like ah screw it and he just busts out the blackboard you know yeah. yeah, and then the other thing that always bothered me is why do the astronauts change on the helicopter? They they come out out of the space capsule with their whites on that they wore the entire the entire trip, and they get lifted up into the helicopter, and then in the helicopter, they, they strip down and change into the into the navy blues that they come off the ship in or come onto the aircraft carrier in. 
That's a I mean, very interesting point, Terry. I, which I think is what actually happened, but why? That's a great point. Yeah, I, I never understood that. Another very minor flaw I had is with the uh, great character of Jimmy Wynn in this movie. Um, Jimmy Wynn <laughs> we, was... We've looked this up. <laughs> <laughs> we have looked this up before, sadly. Um, so Jimmy Wynn was a uh, baseball player, and he played for the Houston Astros. And um, on the night that they show him in this movie, it was a Monday night. It's when their broadcast was supposed to air, but all the networks dumped them, um, according to Henry. Trip and to Pittsburgh. They, they made it look as exciting as a trip to Pittsburgh. They were actually playing the Dodgers that night, which is why I'm making my prediction, uh, Dodgers versus Astros for the World Series. The Dodgers that night won 2 to nothing. According to Jim Lovell's commentary on the movie, um, that was a very accurate scene. Everyone really was watching the Astros-Dodgers game, even at Mission Control. They really just didn't care about you know their broadcast. But the flaw in this movie is that Jimmy Wynn that night went 0 for 3, and he didn't have an RBI. Or a run. So why are they showing yeah, they him, show him rounding they third show him base? rounding the bases, yeah, with the home run. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And curiously enough, that is Ron Howard's voice as the announcer of that baseball game. Oh, that's funny. I didn't know that. <laughs> okay, I have a couple more flaws that are more inaccuracies from real life, kind of like that. So um, the first time we see Deke Slayton uh, is, uh, is in the scene where, um, you know, uh, Jim is answering the question about how do you go to the bathroom in space, and he goes, oh, well, here's Deke Slayton. He might be able to answer this better than I. Deke was one of the original Mercury astronauts. Deke never went to space. Jim, <laughs> Jim yeah, has been in space right. three times. He is much more qualified to answer that question than Deke Slayton is. <laughs> that it was just his, his, his nonchalant way of introducing. I was like, no, no, he is not more qualified to answer this question than you are. You are much more qualified. Um, so that was one. Another one, uh, when he's when he's staring up at the moon after Neil Armstrong walked on, he goes, oh, Apollo 8, we were so close. Only 60 nautical miles down. It's like, yeah, you were that close. But Apollo 8 didn't take a lem. They, <laughs> it was they not didn't take anything to land. To land. Yeah, it was, their job was to just go there and go around the moon to show, yes, we can get to the moon and come back. So he's like, oh, man, we were so close. We could have made it on Apollo 8. No, you couldn't. You didn't have anything to actually land on the moon. The LEM wasn't ready yet. Um, and then the third thing is when he finds out that he's going on Apollo 13, he says Al Shepard's ear inflection f infection flared up. He actually didn't have an ear infection. He had vertigo. And so Alan Shepard was the first American ever into space. And then he didn't fly again until Apollo 14 because he had a bad case of vertigo that, vertigo that lasted for most of the 60s. And he was not cleared to fly again until Apollo 14. And they were hoping he'd be ready for 13, but they grounded him. And so that's why he wasn't on that one. He went on 14. And he, he's the one that had the famous uh, moment on the, on the moon where he hits the golf ball and it flies for miles and miles and miles. Yeah. So anyways. I, I heard a yeah. similar... Uh, thing about that, I, I also heard that Al Shepard was not quite as dedicated to the training regimen as the other astronauts. He was not quite as trained and experienced as Jim Lovell, which was maybe why he was, you know, bumped for that mission. Well, and it's because uh, he, he flew on that first mission and then was grounded uh, for like the next several years. And so, I mean, he was the only Mercury astronaut to land on the moon. He was the only Mercury astronaut to actually fly on an Apollo mission. Well, no, Wally Shura did, but he was the only one to actually get to the moon. So, uh, and and it was his first time since being in up in space for just like 
what 12 minutes on the on the original uh, Mercury flight so uh, so yeah anyways that's one thing that always bothered me it's like no it wasn't an ear infection it was yeah. vertigo and they just decided he wasn't ready yet and because he probably wasn't going to be prepared enough I had another issue too which is that you know when this explosion happens on the ship it is a catastrophic explosion, right? They are looking out the window. They see that is the oxygen tank. This thing is gone. Everyone gives it that moment of silence for five seconds in very obligatory movie fashion when the music's off and everyone's like, oh shit, this shit just got real, okay? Everyone knows they are about to die. It's a big deal. And then Psy makes the suggestion, let's actually not go to the moon by turning off whatever he says to turn off. And then everyone freaks the frick out. They, what, what, wait, wait a second. You're telling me that, like, a second ago, you were concerned about dying. And now you're more pissed off that you're not, not going to make it to the moon? Dude, five seconds ago, you were going to die. Why are you so concerned about not making it to the moon anymore? I would, I, I, I'll, uh... I'll refute that a little bit because at that point, I mean, if they didn't die right away, like like one of one of Lovell's first things that he says is, "Okay, were we hit by a meteor? Close up the limb just in case it was hit." And then it's like, "Okay, well, we're we're still here. Not nothing is our our capsules intact." But then once they realize, "Okay, this is how serious it's gotten." That's when they realize, "Okay, the moon is is out of the picture now." So I, I can see that a little bit, but yeah, valid point. All right, where do we want to go next, guys? Okay, so I got another category. We did this on the last podcast. We need to talk about the biggest douchebag in this movie. Flight surgeon. Dude. No, he's the he's best. He's terrible. <laughs> he's the worst. <laughs> he's not a douchebag. Dude, I, I feel like he honestly was just bothering everybody until they ripped off their biomed sensors so that he could go home. Because that was the last thing. <laughs> Once he can't track those guys, he's got no job to do. And then he can leave and get some sleep, just like he wanted them to do. He he has the, the most obvious line in the world that when the ship blows up, their heart rates are skyrocketing. I mean, come on! That doesn't make him a douchebag. I... I, I knew when the doctors started doing the blood tests. That, but then, uh, but then you go back to the flight surgeon horseshit, Deke. I mean, this, this is yeah. this is a pattern with him. You know, the, the the flight surgeons, the medical people are terrible people. Even before the, even before the rocket ever launched. Okay. He's okay. Still so the if it's only not... guy in the room that actually has a defined job. <laughs> Everyone else is okay. doing everything. <laughs> All right. What about what? What do you guys have then? All right. Mine. Okay. I, I have a. Roger Corman as the congressman who uh, oh good one that's says, a great one that's a great one Jim you know well even if there's Apollo 14 which one makes Jim kind of feel like well damn maybe I won't even go into space the way he's talking and two he's like talk about like budgetary things and shit I don't know yeah that, that it's like a total douchebag line to say and I, I like hated him immediately he's only on screen for a minute <laughs> that's a great one I didn't even think one. about that one um, I had uh, I Barbara Lovell because you know she ruins everything. Um, I also had Henry. I mean, you have to talk about Henry. Yeah, you know? yeah. I was gonna it, say Henry. I mean, this guy sets up a trans a transmitter. You know, I mean, this guy's a total d bag. You know, he hits on Barbara. He's just a, a terrible person. I also low key kind of had the uh, general at the oldest level son's uh, school in Wisconsin. <laughs> You're telling me that 
this kid's dad is about to die, okay? He's been in outer space for seven days. You know, there's a good chance he's going to die. And the best thing you can do is have him watch it in a classroom with a bunch of other kids. And he's going to pat him on the shoulder. I mean, that's, that's terrible, you know? That, that guy is awful. Total douchebag move. <clears throat> okay, I have another one. I have another one. The Grumman guy. Yes. The Grumman guy is a douchebag. We need to talk about guy, for because, sure. Because all he's doing there is he's making sure he doesn't lose his job. He's making sure if something goes wrong, it's not his fault. That's all he cares about. Because like, they say, I wonder what the Grumman guys have to think about this. He goes, we designed the lamb to land on the moon. Not for course correction out in the middle of space. He goes, I don't care what it was designed to do. I care about what it can do. Yeah, but he, he doesn't goes, know what it could do. Because like, ne- they never tried it before. <laughs> they never, exactly. So he's just, and, and so he's instead so of he's saying, all right, well, let's try it. in a bad situation because he knows and, that it could go And really then even wrong. later on, he Are says it again. Him, he goes, we've just what? never tried it before. And he goes, I see what you're doing here. You're not gonna lose your job over it if it if it if something goes wrong, you're covered. Don't worry about but, it. And, and then when, he's like, okay, fine. When it works though, he's it's awesome. He is it was like he just won a bet in Vegas. He slams the table, he's like, ah! How about that limb? <laughs> yeah, I guess you could keep your job. Like like his horse just like crossed. You betcha! Yeah. <laughs> you know, exactly. I think another biggest douchebag candidate could be Richard Nixon. I mean, he does extend Jack's back taxes but he doesn't care about the astronauts he wants odds because all he cares about is public relations you know and like one of the great things about this movie is this movie believes in america in an america where there is a president who is not a crook oh wait the president still is a crook but nixon is is kind of a douchebag in this movie doesn't come off great one other one i i think there is an argument that that jim lovell is sort of a douchebag in how he decides in order instead of just like delaying the flight he's going like and uh and so he could make sure that he has his guy with him he's just gonna pick up some other guy just so he can get to space that's a really selfish douchebag move i think <laughs> and it's well and okay it, it yes, could have been very unsafe <laughs> so so think about this now think about this if i mean the because the, they made it sound you know it's it's a terrible ultimatum to give him uh, first off and um it's like okay, we can scrub the whole crew, or we replace we replace Ken. But think about it: they can't scrub the whole crew because one of their backups has the measles, and nobody else was qualified at that point to fly the mission. No one else had been even prepared somewhat. Like they were questioning whether Jack was prepared. He was the backup. Can we talk about Charlie and Duke as the biggest? Let's douche talk bag? about Charlie Duke. Well, no, I don't think he's a douchebag. I think he had he, the measles. Yeah, that that's. <laughs> That's unfortunate. He that doesn't make him a bad person. He, he ruined the whole movie. <laughs> he did. He's not even he there. Did. Where is he? He's he's never seen in the movie. He didn't even show up. He didn't even show up to the launch or the end. He Charlie is seen Duke in the movie. Douchebag. No, he's not. Where is he? He he's he's, the he's they, they they pass by him in uh, uh, at the simulator when Ken decides to do it again. You're saying he was on the backup crew? Yeah, that's the thing. Well, yeah, I guess that's true. Okay. Because, Char- because Charlie Duke has the measles, was so we need a backup? new backup. I don't think he was on the backup crew. He he was he was uh, he was Fred's backup. Oh, I didn't know that. So yeah, he was Fred's backup. Jack was uh, Ken's backup, and John Young, who is like backup Capcom that sits next to Johnny Cash guy the whole time, that finds that Ken isn't dead. That was uh, that was uh, Jim's backup. He's he was the commander of Apollo Ten. In case you were wondering. So, but don't That's... you think that, that they should have just <laughs> waited till Apollo 14 like they were planning on? 
and uh, and just so he could have his guy instead of I think it was an ultimatum with no clout. I think if he says we're we're keeping our crew intact, then they're then they're just going to be like, "Oh, fine, then you can go." Because they don't have a full crew waiting. Right. Like what are they going to do? Send Buzz up again? I mean, what uh, there's there's nothing they could have done at that point. No one was no one was prepared. That's what I say. Okay. Okay, so I have a little bit of a, a category here. We talked a little bit about this on almost the Almost Famous podcast, Conspiracy Theories. There aren't a whole lot of conspiracy theories with this movie, but I do have one conspiracy theory. It's not really a conspiracy theory, but I'm just going to go with it anyway. So over the course of this movie, Fred Hayes gets very sick. You know, um, Ironically, he sort of accuses Jack Swaggart of giving him the clap. If you like, actually look at the mission of this movie, he had a urinary tract infection, so he actually did have the clap. Um, but, uh, I don't know, whatever. The point is, okay, conspiracy theory. I think Fred Hayes could have amended all of his sickness and gotten a lot better if they had just put the camera on him. Because in the broadcast that he gives to America, he, like, is so lively and active, and he's funny. And, you know, he, like, plays jokes on all of them, and he throws off his glasses and does the, like, little, you know, fake emergency thing. All they needed to do to wake this guy up and to get him out of his sickness was just make a broadcast back to Earth. That's it. He came alive when the cameras were on him. Here's my conspiracy theory. He switched his uh, his uh, blood samples with Ken. Oh. I've never thought about that before. That's juicy. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm going with. I don't think he's smart enough to do that, though, because as, as we've <laughs> clearly established, he's not that smart, as Todd has pointed out many times. <laughs> well, they almost took a pig up with him for good luck. I mean, he could eat out the ass out of a dead rhinoceros, right? Okay, so I saw something about that line. So that line was uh, that was a, an ad lib on the day of that, sh- that shoot, and it was given to them by uh, an actor who was visiting the uh, the the film set that day uh, the actor's name is Gary Busey and uh, and he gave him that line as a line that uh, he had used in the film Point Break that's amazing Gary Busey could have made some considerable contributions to this film too I could see him being you know a Capcom or maybe FAO so, what's the the line is? What's the line again? <laughs> he, uh, I could eat the ass out of a dead rhinoceros. I don't. I I'm just picturing like Ace Ventura when nature calls. But <laughs> 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 that was after this movie. <laughs> that was after this movie. <laughs> I have another conspiracy uh, theory about this movie. Okay. I think Psy knows that when uh jack goes to stir the tank something is wrong because they show him right away puffing out his smoke from his cigarette and he looks very like frazzled and yeah. distraught uh, i i think it definitely is something it's either that or it is a, a continuity error where they had a shot of him realizing and they just snuck it in before the explosion happened Sai knows. Sai is the Sai is the MVP of about a ten minute segment of this movie. When the, and then you never see him. Again. And then you never see him again, except at the <laughs> end, and his line about you know the, the the back taxes. Well, I guess that's that's earlier, but yes, 
Yes. Sai, Sai, for a 10 minute stretch of this movie, he's the only person that knows anything. And then he disappears. That would have been interesting. So uh, here's another, um, someone who was considered for Fred Hayes, Michael Keaton. Fred Hayes, that would have been interesting. Fred Hayes needs to have a southern accent. He needs to be a country bumpkin from Mississippi with 55 kids. There was some other casting stuff here. I already mentioned Brad Pitt. Do you know... Okay, so... Um, oh, there it is. Another kind of random factoid I read up, I didn't realize. So Mary Hayes, she's played by Betty Spaghetti, right? Yes, played Bet- by Betty Spaghetti. Betty Spaghetti was in five movies with Tom Hanks. Can you name the five movies she was in? With Tom Hanks? Well, A League of Their Own and Apollo 13 or two. Okay, so I guess three others? Uh, Green Mile? No? No. Um, Road to Perdition? No. Big? Philadelphia. Oh, no. Um, Big is correct. Sleepless in Seattle? No. <laughs> you suck, Terry. Uh, I do. Bachelor I do. Party? Uh, no. But it's it's a movie from that era before Tom Hanks was Tom Hanks. The Burbs. Oh, that's a great guess, but no. Bonfire of the Vanities. No. Joe versus Volcano. No. Underrated movie, by the way. I love Joe versus Volcano. I've, great movie. We should do a deep dive on that movie. We totally should. Um. <laughs> no one would listen to it. Not that anyone's <laughs> listening to this shit. <laughs> Uh, the answer uh, is, you want the answer? Go, yeah, go ahead. Want, the answer is nothing in common with Jackie Gleason as Tom Hanks' father. And what was the other one? Uh, that Thing You Do. Oh. Oh. Okay. I forgot she was... I could see that. I don't remember her. All right, well, we haven't talked about this yet. Todd alluded to it. Kathleen Quinlan, is she the MVP of this movie? Oh, or excuse me, not MVP, LVP, Least Valuable Player. Yeah, she she's she's terrible. Her character is terrible. Even I feel like her, his whole family. I don't know how he's so happy all the time because his family is really annoying. <laughs> well, that's why he you know doesn't even he comes home for twenty seconds on Halloween and then leaves them again. Tells them you know he's going to the moon. Doesn't spend any time with them. Goes to Cape Canaveral. At least he did. His he didn't just call. He he did show up. But yeah. He, and he does the other time we see him go home he's got a whole box of booze so <laughs> I guess I can see that I think that I, the, I, go ahead Jerry no I, I I don't know I, I I don't have a problem with uh with Marilyn Lovell I think I don't think it's Kathleen Quinlan's fault I think the movie is a little sexist I think every scene she's in she's looking at the screen, you know, lovingly, hoping that her husband comes back to Earth. And I do think it's interesting that prior to the launch, she wears a lot of blue eyeshadow on her eye, and then it disappears after the launch, and it never comes back again. Okay. Um, I, I, I need to move on to something else, because we forgot <laughs> someone when we were talking about the MVP, the most, most valuable person in this movie, and that is the Steely-Eyed Missile Man. Oh. The, the guy who builds the filter. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, and here, yeah, here's here's the best part about him that I just found out as I'm as I'm looking around on IMDb. So that actor's name is Walter Von Hune, 
and you know it you know he's a an, an accomplished actor when his imdb profile picture is a still from apollo 13 um but uh he is most known as being the acting coach for arnold schwarzenegger wow yeah so he is credited 16 times well maybe not all 16 of them but he's credited like 12 times as being Arnold Schwarzenegger's acting coach in movies. And then he's been in only a couple. Including several uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger movies like Jingle All the Way and Terminator 3. I always wondered in that scene when they make a filter why no one... Um, I mean, why why is there a spacesuit there? Do they really Because it's that... everything they have on board. I guess. Another question about that scene is when uh, when Jim Lovell gives them their sock, his sock, to put in the air filter, uh, does that mean he goes the rest of the movie without one sock? Like, I'm going to say yes. Is he just barefoot on one foot the whole rest of the movie? I'm going to say yes. I think so, too. That, that would make him really cold. Another flaw in this movie is why don't they huddle up? Are they so homophobic that they won't hug each other? <laughs> Yeah, I was thinking that too. And why why don't they just try to actually go to sleep? They weren't doing anything for so long. Like, why don't you just go to sleep? They probably would warm up that way. I mean, they don't have a blanket. They're just like sitting there freezing their asses off for, for like well, hours I, I was and hours. wondering, why did they put the suits on? I mean, that would have warmed them up. Yes, but maybe the suits disappeared because things in space, I guess, disappear. Like the Tang. What happens to the Tang? Where does it go? It doesn't get drunk. It it's just, frozen. It's frozen like the hot dog. Yeah, I, I was thinking he should have put that like in his suit or something to warm it up so he could actually eat it. But that's just another like dumb thing. Like, why do you have to show like a frozen hot dog and have him like banging it on the side of the ship, <laughs> even when all all Jack has to do is like smack the ship and then Fred freaks out about he's gonna break it or something because that piece of shit's gonna get it home. But like he's sitting there and he's like smacking the hot dog on the side on the thing. I'm like, what? <laughs> like I don't know. That's just another little dumb little thing that they do. See, warming up the hot dog though was number six hundred ninety-three. Two, and they were they they were too worried about six hundred ninety-two. Oh, yeah. okay. He took the hot dog out of the bag. But they were on number eight. <laughs> True. True. <laughs> all right. Okay. So, uh, all right. Do we have we're anything gonna... else we want to talk about? Oh, I've got a couple things. I got a couple things here. Um, best use of archival footage. So from what I from what I saw. There were four main uses of archival footage here. You had the footage of the Apollo 11 moon landing with Walter Cronkite. You had Jimmy Wynn. You had... Uh, <laughs> That's you such had, a stupid use of archival it is, footage. It is. Um, you, had, you had Dick Cavett talking about Jack Swigert. And you had Jules Bergman giving the, uh, giving the news reports. I'm going to say the best use was... was uh, Jules Bergman. I mean that that was some pretty uh, clearly some pretty good stuff there. I love I my favorite archival footage was when they actually go through the demonstration and they light the torch and they blow <laughs> <laughs> like that must have been quite a scene in that newsroom when they had the torch and they're blowing up and the heat is on the thing. That is authentic, man. That's that's intense. Yeah, yeah, that that was pretty good. That was pretty good. However, I did. Lo- I think the Dick Cavett uh, little clip is pretty is pretty good too. 
I've always I've always liked that one too. I like that scene. I like that scene because you can so see Gary Sinise in that scene as Lieutenant Dan. He's drinking his beer. <laughs> he's so pissed off at the world. You know, he's angry. He turns the TV off just before they get to the emergency broadcast, and he's so angry, just like Lieutenant Dan. But, but that's off the Dick point. Why does Dick have to like ask his like side guy if it was Swagger <laughs> that was the that was the bachelor? Yeah, yeah, he's yeah. Like, he's I like, know. there's a bachelor in the space. Is it Swagger? It's like, yeah, no. It's the other two guys that have been part of NASA forever. And I, I also like how he takes like ten seconds to decide whether he it's it's proper to say less viewers or fewer viewers. Oh yeah, that's a great point. <laughs> I've always found Dick Cavett really annoying. Have you ever watched any of his clips on YouTube? He's he's pretty lame. Like the the clip I watched the most is his interview with Marlon Brando from 1973. He's so annoying in that interview, you know. Not I don't know. He he does not age well. Put it that way. Uh, okay, I've got one more one more category I want to I want to talk about. Then we can can start to wrap this up a little bit. Best cameo in the movie. Okay, we've talked about a couple of them already. We talked about Roger Corman. We talked about Jim Lovell. Jim Lovell is the is the captain of the Iwo Jima at the end of the film, where the where they uh, where they land after after getting rescued at sea. Um, and I've got two others that I that I noticed throughout the throughout the film. You've got Walter Cronkite, who was actually brought in to record more uh, more voiceover, like the very beginning there, the opening uh, narration he recorded just for the film. Um, another one is Jeffrey Kluger, who is the uh, the co-writer of the book Lost Moon with Jim Lovell that this movie was based on. He is one of the news reporters. So when you're watching the news, you're either watching Jules Bergman or you're watching Jeffrey Kluger taping like news stuff. Where, so like he's the one that talks about how if you take the basketball and the softball and you put them 12 feet apart, you have to hit the, the thing that's a piece the size of a piece of paper. That's Jeffrey Kluger, the co-writer of the book. So... Um, best cameo. I'm going with Cronkite because he's Walter Cronkite. I mean, you gotta go with Cronkite, right? That's not a bad one. Who else you could go with? I mean, apparently Marilyn Lovell was in the scene at the launch, and she was right in front of Kathleen Quinlan. But I've never really been able to see her in that scene. Apparently, Bryce Dallas Howard is there too. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know who else you go with either. Cronkite. I mean, it, it's just like when they're in the, when 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 they're getting ready to watch the Apollo Eleven landing. It's like, who do we want? We want Cronkite. I mean, that's 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 all you can go with. I had another question about that scene. Well, it was more of an observation than a question, which is that um, I think it's really unique and interesting how at the Lovell House the TV is on the floor. Like, I guess that's a thing they did in the seventies. But, like, everyone's, like, looking down at the TV, and they, like, sit on the ground. Like, that seems so weird now. You know, I know I know. It's this movie's, like, 50, you know, this movie's portraying something that was 50 years ago, but did people really put the TV on the ground? I'm going to say yes. I, I would assume so, but it's just, it's, it's kind of jarring to watch. Well, and I know <laughs> what they did is they... <laughs> it's jarring to watch. I I know what they did is they they had old old photos of the Lovell household to help them recreate what it looked like for that scene. So um, I'm assuming that's what it was actually what it actually looked like. So it but I I, don't, I wouldn't go as far as jarring, but uh. it's unusual. <laughs> it was noticeable this, when I watched it last night. Like, why are they looking down? Why wouldn't you put your uh, TV there are on the stand? People sitting on the floor. 
while he was getting squished by his mommy. Exactly. <laughs> I guess. And the pat on the head from the priest who's there for some reason. Another flaw yep. is like someone says uh, at one point, we got a wicked shimmy up here. I don't think any of them were from Boston. Who says <laughs> we got a wicked shimmy? That's a pretty good guy from Mississippi. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, all right. All right. Well, Todd, Todd I believe you have some. Uh, you have some trivia for us. Yeah. I mean, I don't even know why I'm heading trivia. You guys know this movie so well. <laughs> like, I, I didn't like go so far as to like pick up like what, what's behind Ben Fongtori's head or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, it was uh, Elaine May and Mike Nichols. <laughs> So Terry had the idea of uh, doing this one of you at a time, and the other one steps out for a minute. So Terry, uh, go off, and we'll wave you back in when when after I'm done getting Zach's answers. Okay, so I'm just I'm just gonna take my headphones out, and then uh, and then I'll be watching. Okay. So yeah, okay. yeah, okay, all right, all right. So we got seven questions. Oh god. One of them has somewhat been answered, but there are uh, 14 possible answers, so some of them are multiple part questions. Okay, number one, what military academy does Jim's son go to? Uh, it's in Wisconsin, um, the St. John's Academy. Okay, that's correct. Uh, who were the men that Jim rattles off uh, in the backyard while he's staring into the sky like Forrest Gump? Christopher Columbus... Oh, shoot. Christopher Columbus. Uh, yeah, I, I can't remember the other one. Okay, that's too incorrect. Uh, the other ones were Charles... I think I went half point. Charles Lindbergh, Neil Armstrong. Yeah. I get a half point for that. Yeah, Come no, I, I mean, I'm giving you one point out of three. So okay. That's why I say there's 14 possible answers for seven questions. Okay. So, uh, uh, where was the crew going to broadcast from the, on the moon? From Mora Highlands. Okay, that's correct. Uh, who is the ABC science editor? Jules Bergman? Yeah, we kind of already answered that one. Yeah, so. we answered that. Um, what is the only thing that Neil Armstrong says to Blanche? Did Jimmy make Eagle Scout? Yeah, that's correct. That's uh, sad that I know that. I need a <laughs> life. Uh, on the helicopter that takes them at the end, an animal is painted on the door. What is the animal? frog that's correct and too easy what are the five things uh that are needed to build the filter uh, a sock the cover of the flight plan um a tape what kind of tape uh duct tape yeah um that like uh, the the square peg and the round cartridges does that, does that count? No, you gotta have the name. I <sighs> this is not a government operation, Todd. Um, <laughs> this is as obscure as I could get with these questions. <laughs> That's all I got. All right, so I'm you done. got two right. Uh, all right, you missed the uh, sock was not one that they mentioned. So, well, but but that was part of the filter though. They needed yeah, the sock. The correct answers were the flight plan cover two lithium hydroxide canisters gray slash duct tape two lcg bags and the red suit hoses okay okay got it okay all right you can i yeah okay he can be off for this one (laughs) okay 
All right, hold on. Zach, Zach doesn't need to be out for this. I mean, he can listen in if he wants to, okay. right? Because he's already heard them all. Yeah, join back in, Zach. Okay. All right, that, I, I, th I think it'll be good to hear, hear him get beat uh, live. Okay. Okay, so there are seven questions, and there are 13 possible points. And I'm not oh, going to tell okay. you what Zach got. Okay. 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 So number one, can, can, can you can you uh, so I don't even get to know what his score was or anything. Uh, I don't know. Should I tell him what your score was, Zach? No. Okay. 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 Number one, what military academy does Jim's son go to? Um. <sighs> Naval Academy, in it's in it's in Wisconsin. None of that is right. <laughs> I mean, Wisconsin probably is right, but I don't know that part. Yeah, that's not the right answer, though. Okay. Okay. What is it? St. John's. Oh, oh. Because it's on his I, sweatshirt. You wanted an actual... Okay, you want an actual name. I got it. Okay, never mind. Okay, um, who were the men that Jim rattles off while staring into the sky like Forrest Gump? Christopher Columbus, Charles Lindbergh, and Neil Armstrong. Those are all correct. Okay, where was the crew going to bro broadcast from on the moon? Frau Mora. Frau Moro, yeah. Frau Moro, yeah. Frau Moro uh, Highlands. Okay, uh, who is the ABC And that's where he was editor? trained for. Jules Bergman. Yeah, we, like I said, we already answered that one because <laughs> you were staring into trivia the entire time. Um, <laughs> what was the only thing that Neil Armstrong says to Blanche? Uh, did Jim make Eagle Scout or not? That's Good correct. job. <laughs> uh, on the helicopter that takes them at the end, an animal is painted on the door. What is the animal? It's a frog with a cigar. That is correct. And, uh, what are the materials needed to build the filter? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you got, well, you got the sock. You got the cover to the flight plan. You've got uh, uh, one, no, I mean two lithium hydroxide canisters. Um, you've got the plastic bag, uh, and you've got a, a piece of a piece of tape, a, a gray tape, a duct tape, and it needs to be about an arm's length, about an tear arm's length, and tear it lengthwise. <laughs> okay, so you got three out of the five correct. Uh, the sock is never mentioned, so the answers are the flight plant cover, two lithium hydroxide canisters, gray slash duct tape, two LCG bags, and oh, the, re yeah. the red suit hoses. Ah. So that is a score of 10 to 8. Terry is victorious. Oh, yes. Congratulations. So I got Zach 10 of the thir 13 yeah. points, right? Yeah, Zach could not remember Charles Lindbergh and Neil Armstrong. No, I, I remember I remember Neil Armstrong, but well, after I didn't I know said Charles Lindbergh. Lindbergh. <laughs> I didn't know you were. At, I thought Neil Armstrong was assumed. It's obvious it's Neil Armstrong. Names. Whatever. Well, anyway, Terry okay, wins. Well, I, I I agree. Terry Terry got that. <laughs> what what else did you get wrong? Uh, the 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 multiple um, things that you needed to make the. Uh, yeah, he said the square peg of the round oh. hole, and <laughs> come on, that's good enough. Come on, that, that it's not a government operation. Those are those are the lithium hydroxide canisters. <laughs> that's good enough. <laughs> but you both said I, the sock. I, they never say sock. That they just get that when they're like giving it to them. But like the five things that they read off to them, 
are those? Terry got that. Ter- Terry wins because he said lithium hydroxide cancer. I didn't get that. You Terry wins that. Did Did you get the duct tape? You just I got tape. the duct tape. Said, I said okay. duct tape. I asked you, you what kind of tape. <laughs> what other tape is there? <laughs> Could be a lot it's of not scotch. They didn't bring scotch tape up to the moon. Arms length, <laughs> torn lengthwise. I I see where you're going with that. Yeah. I see where you're going. Good job, Fred. <laughs> Stupid dumbass. <laughs> I did get the St. John's Academy though. You didn't get that. Oh, you did. I did not get St. John's Academy. I don't know if I would have come up with St. John's Academy. He was wearing and a it shirt. was in Wisconsin, though. He had a shirt of St. John's Academy at the beginning of the movie. At the, I was trying uh, to launch party. I, I, and he wasn't going to get a haircut. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I spent probably a good 20 minutes trying to figure out <laughs> what kind of champagne it was, but I could not <laughs> get a freeze frame of the box. <laughs> like, he moves it so fast. Uh, like, it's like facing his chest, and then he like whips it around. And I was like, man, I can almost see what it says. <laughs> that would have been the perfect question, because I know neither that, of you have gotten it. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, would have been yeah. an awesome question to get. Uh, okay. Well, I think that, that wraps things up here. Uh, let's move on to a quote of the day. And I'm going to go first uh, with a quote from Apollo 13 that uh, I think... I'm going to steal Zach's line here. I think pretty well sums up this podcast. Uh, it's, it's near the end when the, when the, uh, when the director is talking or they're talking about all the different problems and Henry's talking to, to Joe Spano, who's one of the directors. And he's, he goes, I'm aware of the, the issues, Henry, this could be the worst disaster NASA's ever faced. And Gene just turns and says, with all due respect, sir, I believe this is going to be our finest hour. And that's how I feel about this episode right here. <laughs> this could have been the worst disaster that we had ever faced, but I believe it's our finest hour. Successful failure, if you will. Yeah, exactly. All right. Zach, what do you got? You stole my line, Terry. Screw you. You beat me in trivia. You steal my line. You are no steely-eyed missile man. All right. Um, well, then we'll go to Todd next, and then you can, we'll come back to you. Todd. Quote. Okay, well, this is a quote I actually quote a lot for random reasons, but I feel like it describes this podcast, and that is <laughs> from my favorite character, Dr. Chuck. Now we're losing all three of them. <laughs> uh, uh, I, can't, I can't imagine ever topping that, but uh, Zach... <laughs> Zach, do you have a do you have a quote? Have you thought of one yet? Uh, well, I do like when when um, Jim says, you know, if I had a dollar for every time you killed me in this thing, I wouldn't have to work for you, Deke. And uh, I don't know, you screwed me up, Terry. I didn't think you'd choose that line. Gosh, dang it's it! The best line. Line. Like, now we've we've had our glitch for this mission. We've said that one before on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> The Are Wicked you boys Shimmy in the, was a pretty decent line. The Wicked Shimmy was a good one. Are you boys in the space program too? I like that line a lot. I don't know. I got nothing. No line. You, you like that I line? Have... You gave that line with crap like <laughs> half an hour ago. You gave it crap. That was not one of my bad lines. My bad lines were the wives. That was the mom. That was a funny line. Here, here, here's, here's my quote that I'm going to give, give in for Zach, uh, which I think describes this podcast well and it's when uh it's when he's uh uh jim is driving along to a to a press function and uh and his car stalls and he just says well that's the second time it's done that and and yes 
I, I think le- leaving Zach speechless, I think this might be only the second time it's done that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally lost. Maybe I'll give the line that the guy in the car says, Fall 13! Right on! Yeah. Right on! Lucky number 13! Lucky number 13! <laughs> hey, are you Jim Lovell? <laughs> <laughs> I love that guy. Uh, and with that, uh, we bring this to a close. Uh, so uh, thank you so much for listening to the Almost Sideways podcast. Uh this was what should have been your quote between uh, Jack's back taxes and the Fred Hayes show. I believe that was a pretty successful broadcast. But uh, I will uh, uh, we'll be seeing you in a couple weeks for our next episode. It'll be a more traditional one. Uh, if you haven't done so already, make sure you subscribe, rate, review on iTunes. Uh, find us at almostsideways.com. Find us on Facebook. Find us on Twitter. If you have any questions for us before our next episode, you can use the hashtag AskAlmostSideways and we'll answer them on the air. But uh, with that, uh, we wish you a pleasant evening. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.